Welcome, friends, to Breakfast in the Ruins, a Michael Moorcock-flavoured podcast. On this show, we're taking a trip across the USA in the company of two of my favourite Moorcock-inspired musicians to emerge from the Moonbeam Roads this past 18 months or so. First up, I'm heading to California to talk to Dave Washman about his space rock project, Sonus. Dave's music will be familiar to ongoing listeners, as we played the track The Eternal Champion from the debut Sonus platter, Worlds Undreamed Of, back on the birthday episode last year. I could talk about this album, but instead I'll just read this review from the Stoner Hive blog as it sums it up far better than I could. On Worlds Undreamed Of, the first release by one-man project Sonus, Dave Washman, the man behind it all, comes across as a doom metal poet, a space rock prophet and a troubadour of despair. Moving effortlessly from Dave Windorf-inspired vocals and lyrics to Neil Young and back again, the man weaves a colourful tapestry full of adventurous rock that will have you explore the outer reaches of the universe as much as the inner workings of your heart and soul. For the journey will take you inwards and into a cellular level of contemplation, which is exactly the right thing to do during this worldwide pandemic. But don't think there is only burdensome meditation and reflection here. For the rock is hard, the metal heavy, and certain cartoon images are bound to pop up when you're lying on the floor spacing out to worlds undreamed of. Sonus is the art we all need to pursue, and clocking in at 33 minutes, it weaves all of the bong-fueled psychedelia and space rock passages into a stunning patchwork quilt. Simply put, it's spiritually and audibly satisfying. Beautiful poetry to go with its unhurried, spacey prog. Fine words there from J.K. of Stoner Hive. From there, I hopped into Professor Faustoff's Buick and headed across to Queens, New York, to catch up with the man behind Imria, a bleak experimental electronic project inspired by Moorcock and a whole host of other sci-fi luminaries. It took a few weeks, thanks to an unfortunate invoker incident along the way, so these were recorded five weeks apart. Back when I first looked at music on the show and talked with the dungeon synth artist known as Elric, and Nathan, a.k.a. Coram, I had a route around the music scene for some more interesting tunes with a more cocky and slant, and Imria was one of the first bands I came across. Obviously the name rang all of the right bells, as did the first release, The Dreaming City. I was also taken with the cover art and the whole aesthetic that accompanied it, and track titles like Cimmeril, The Nyrain, Arioc, and Moonglum sealed the deal, so I dove in and I wasn't disappointed, and with tags like Experimental, Noise, Electronica, and Minimalist, it was right up my alley. And since then, Imria's output has been prodigious, including a revised version of The Dreaming City. Listening to Imria's catalogue is a journey, and if you love evocative soundscapes, you're right in the zone. Also, for those of a gaming inclination, there are some absolute killer scores here for your gaming table. So, strapping gang, this is another long one, as we head from coast to coast in search of sonic satisfaction. And our first stop is... Sonus. <laughs> And we are back in Derry and Tom's virtual roof garden. Thank goodness it's virtual because I can't make it all the way to California to record these things. And frankly, I don't think my guests would particularly want to come over to Bradford because it's fucking freezing over here. But welcome, Dave, a.k.a. Sonus, and welcome to, uh, to Derry and Tom's. Hey, great to be here, virtual Derry and Tom's. 
talking across the moonbeam roads absolutely and you know what it's, it's great to have you because you're actually one of our earliest friends of the show and our earliest supporters going all the way back probably over a year now and uh, i remember when you did drop me a line about the show and you told me that you were i think you were driving somewhere were you driving to san francisco or something like that and it all sounded so exotic <laughs> Trust me, <laughs> nothing exotic about that 280 traffic. But uh, thankfully, I had you to listen to to make that commute uh, bearable. Yeah, that was about three days a week to SFSU at the time. So whereabouts are you best? So I'm actually I'm in uh, Santa Clara, California, which is famous for being the birthplace of COVID in the United States. Isn't that wonderful? <laughs> I, had, I, I had my own little hometown name checked by the president not too long ago. <laughs> Well, wow, that that is uh, that is some claim to fame uh, oh, for yeah. your hometown. Dubious, <laughs> and uh, I, I understand that the chief variant in in the United States now is the UK variant. So that's right. Hands across the ocean, man. There you go. See, I got a little PC guys right here. Always, <laughs> always close to my heart. <laughs> Hopefully, not you know that close to my lungs, but you know. Sure, absolutely. Now, of course. Our listeners will be um, somewhat familiar with Sonus because, of course, we played one of your songs on the birthday episode and you recorded a birthday message for the man himself. So just just to, to explain to everybody, Dave and I have got together to talk very specifically, not just about Mocock, because, of course, it's a Mocock-flavoured podcast, but also about Dave's music project, Sonus, which, how would you describe Sonus? Space rock? Prog rock? Oh, yeah. You know, basically, it's just kind of... You know, it, it, for, for me, it's just kind of an opportunity to kind of just make whatever kind of song kind of pops into my head. You know, I've been a part of a couple of music projects, and they, they've all just kind of been not exactly what I wanted to do. Yeah. This is, I mean, literally, it's just me in a freaking bedroom recording this stuff, so it's whatever comes to my mind. And if it happens to be, you know, crazy psychedelic, you know, Hawkwind madness or, you know, something more like a Motorhead or, you know, basically it's just all my influences and whatever pops up from them. So a lot of 70s stuff. Yep. That's kind of like really my preferred era, I guess, of music, you could yeah. say. Yeah. So um, in terms of those, you know, those 70s bands, that that kind of genre music, what what are your chief influences? Oh, man. Well, I mean, you know, my, my dad, for one, he played me Led Zeppelin in the mm. womb. And so <laughs> once he got that from birth, it's kind of, you know, it's kind of hard to get into certain other you know, musical forms, how do you compare with Led Zeppelin, right? But yeah, yeah. Zeppelin, Sabbath, you know, um, and then on my own, I discovered, you know, Motorhead, Hawkwind, the new wave of British heavy metal, Judas Priest, Iron Maiden, you know, stuff like that. Yep. So it's all just a big old mix of rock and roll history right in there. We normally kick off this uh, show with a key question, and I don't think we should vary from that at all today. What's your history with Michael Moorcock? Well, let's see. So to go all the way back to the origin of why I grew my hair long and started lifting a bunch of weights in the first place, I would have to say, you know, Conan the Barbarian, really. You know, I, I was 14. I saw the 82 Schwarzenegger movie, thought it was amazing, changed my life. And then I'm like, well, I got to have more of this. And then there's comics, the Dark Horse comics, which are phenomenal. Yep. And, you know, obviously then from there I got into the actual original Robert E. Howard stories. And, you know, my dad had read to me Lord of the Rings when I was a kid, and I had gotten really into, like, Norse mythology and stuff like that after learning, you know, we're Swedish, and after learning what a Swede was, <laughs> I got into that. Yeah. But Conan completely blew me away when I read that, because before, you know, fantasy and sci-fi to me was mostly just whatever movie came out in theaters and, you know, 
my various huge boxes of superhero comics, but this was like really me starting to get into actually reading fantasy and sci-fi literature. And then from mm -hmm. Robert E. Howard, all of his characters, you know, H.P. Lovecraft and like the Weird Tales, you know, Clark Ashton Smith, those kind of things mm -hmm. I started reading. Of course, at the same time, I was discovering new music. And from Motorhead came Hawkwind. From Hawkwind, that's really where I came upon uh, Michael Moorcock and mm -hmm. discovered that. And so it just happened to perfectly align with the time that the Del Rey uh, reprints of the Elric stories were coming out. So, of course, I bought all those because they did such a great job with Conan. And, you know, I just started digging in and reading this stuff. And mm. I remember, I think the story that really, you know, truly got me into Michael Moorcock was While the Gods Laugh, when Elric is going on the quest for the Dead Gods book. And he, you know, after all this misadventure, you know, he meets Moonglum, he meets Shirilla. And finally, at the end, he, he comes upon the book, he finds it. He's like, okay, here's the answer to everything right here. And this, this tome lifts the cover. Freaking thing disintegrates on him. <laughs> <laughs> well, isn't that just life? You know, so that, that really, um, that was a pretty cool story. And that, that really kind of got me into seeing, okay, what else has this guy done? It's, it's funny you mentioned that because um, Hussein and I, of course, covered phase two of the final program a while back and we will eventually get round to phase three but uh, the, the entire MacGuffin of that, that middle part is kind of almost like a retread of while the gods laugh because it's the it's the astronaut's journal isn't it and and it doesn't disintegrate when they find it but they just find that it's just filled with ha 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 <laughs> from from beginning to end and this and this MacGuffin just gets just cast aside yeah, and it's another example of Mocock when he's kind of, you know, recycling himself almost. But because yeah. we, have, we haven't got round to Wild God's Laugh, <laughs> we haven't got round to Wild God's Laugh on our, on our grand reread. And I'm really looking forward to getting into all that stuff because I don't think we've even met Moonglum yet on our yeah. rereads. But by the way, what are you drinking? Oh, man. Well, I happen to have a crazy farm psycho cider. And you know they're crazy because they spell crazy with a K. So oh, my God. Look out. Yeah. Look yeah. out now. Yeah, and of course, I happened to drop this thing, knocked over with the uh, cable here as I was going to the bathroom. So we'll see if this doesn't just explode all over the place right now. And we're good. Oh yeah, <laughs> fair play. I was, I was, I was expecting you might have to shotgun the entire can for a second. But there you go. Get the party yeah. started. Closest yeah. thing I've had to a party in about a whole year. Or so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, we've, we've got those to look forward to with any luck. Oh, um, yeah. So. You, you discover Elric, you go down that rabbit hole with the Del Rey editions. How, how quickly did you kind of go on the Pokemon hunt for the other bits and pieces of Mocock and, <laughs> and go down that rabbit hole? Yeah, so it's, uh, well, yes, that was the other thing too. Um, in Volume 2, actually, they have the original, um, I guess, short story version of The Eternal Champion. Yeah. And I remember reading that and I was like, okay, well, this is this is another you know, kind of flavor of uh, the rainbow here. Let, let's see what it. Uh, let's see what this day's like. And I liked it. So, yeah, yeah. After that, it was a little while because then, you know, then I was in college, and then all the books that I were buying were just super expensive textbooks for a number of years. Yeah. So, graduated that, and then I just got back into you know, hunting down my uh, local used bookshop and just you know seeing what they had, and they had a bunch. Thankfully, of Michael yeah. Moorcock. So I got Corm, got into him, Hawk Moon, other you know various bits and bobs here and mm -hmm. there. This really good collection of short stories, The Time Dweller and Moorcock's mm -hmm. Martyrs. I got those ones, and you know I love those 
seventies Daw book covers. Mm. I mean, my God, it's so cool. They could each be like an album yeah. cover. Yeah, those those Daw covers. Um, I think the Elric ones. They used the Michael Whelan paintings, didn't they? Which in in oh, in yeah. the UK were on the panther or grafton depending on the year paperbacks yeah. and, and i think my probably my still my iconic elric um illustration is the stormbringer cover by michael whelan um, oh yeah it's, it's just absolutely beautiful i mean yeah. if i could invent some kind of time machine and, and and go back in time i would definitely burgle michael whelan's house when he just completed <laughs> that and, and spirit it away and stick it on a wall somewhere yeah it's absolutely fabulous oh yeah so you're growing up you're getting into music you're getting into mocock how did you become a musician? Right. Well, you know, it just kind of, you know, I always just kind of heard just various songs just kind of pop into my head, and that's still very much the case. You know, it, it, it's kind of weird. Usually, like when I'm writing music, I'll just kind of get everything at once. It's like, boom, it just kind of pops into my brain. There it is blaring out, and now I have to do something with it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I always love guitar, you know, being a, a rock and roll guy. Um, so... I remember my mom got me an acoustic guitar when I was 12, and uh, she took me to the church uh, that we went to at the time. Like, oh, let's get some guitar lessons going, you know, and I wanted to learn, you know, Led Zeppelin and Black Sabbath and ACDC, and they were like, uh, no, we're going to play uh, Jesus Touch My Special Soul or whatever, I don't know. <laughs> you know, it, it was not for me. Even yeah. even then as a kid, it was just not for me, and so I kind of put it down for a while. But then on my... Uh, my 17th birthday she got me just straight up an electric guitar and then they always say you know you should learn on an acoustic first and then go to electric so that you don't you know you're not just sloppy and you don't suck um but for me you know i found finally oh my god i can play hand of doom and that was the first riff i learned how to play was black sabbath yeah. hand of doom and from then i was just hooked and i was just on that thing you know hours at a time just noodling around and you know improvising and stuff like that trying to come up with my own riffs and i mean yeah and from there i was hooked one day i decided you know i should uh, actually turn this into something and here we are <laughs> so is is i mean just picking up on that point i guess there must be generations of of kids who picked up the guitar out there who had they been forced to start with an acoustic guitar and not experiment with power chords might never have gone on you know to Pretty to rock yeah, yeah yeah um so is, is sonus your first project then in terms of being a singer-songwriter yeah you know, i've been in a few musical uh projects here and there um usually not as the head guy but just like oh dave plays something let's let's get him in to do it so first i played bass in a um couple bands around here uh that a buddy of mine uh, invited me to join mm-hmm. and you know the kind of went nowhere uh fell apart as as most bands do um <laughs> and then another one i was playing guitar and bass and doing other stuff um with this more kind of um i guess more electronic led kind of more psychedelic sort of uh thing but it wasn't you know it wasn't rock enough for me all of a sudden i find myself in quarantine Mm. with nothing to do and all these song ideas that have been laying around i have you know have the daw have the recording software have all my instruments i know how to play everything so all right let's record an album what you've just described is uh, a fantastic side effect of this fucking relentless quarantine, isn't it? True. Because lots and lots of people have been forced into new creative ventures to avoid going bloody crackers. Yeah. And I, and, and I know what what you've created in terms of in terms of that album is creatively way 
more advanced and several magnitudes greater than anything I've done with this podcast. But I kind of I identify with the fact that having something to concentrate on and something to just you know pour a little bit of creativity into when you can't go out and do anything or see anybody or meet family is an absolute. I mean, I'm not a religious person, but it's a godsend with a small g. It really yeah. is. Yeah, you know, um, it 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 truly has been a an amazing thing. It's something I always wanted to do. You know, that's that's another thing too. You know, I just graduated literally like a month into quarantine. <laughs> I finally got my degree from SF State, so that was like one major you know life thing done. And then yeah. the other thing was just you know I'm like, well, I really just always wanted to do music, so why don't I just make an album? I've got all this time. And, you know, it's been great because, you know, you will just lose days and days and days just tweaking, you know, the reverb back and forth until you're happy with it. I mean, my God, it's some tedious stuff, but it is a great time killer. Yeah. <laughs> Wonderful busy work. So, yeah, I mean, honestly, it, it's been really cool and I'm super glad I did it as I'm sure everybody who goes and actually does the creative thing that they want to do is, you know, it's just, it's just really cool. Yeah. What's behind the name? Oh, actually, that also comes from Michael Moorcock in a very roundabout way. So I was reading, you know, like, the band name is the worst part, right? It's like, how do you slap a label on whatever this weird thing that I'm doing is that's going to, you know, convey anything or even just not already be taken, right? Because everything I wanted was already taken. Hmm. So... I, 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 just, I was just reading an interview with Michael Moorcock, and he was talking about a, a paper that he edited when he was a kid, with, you know, like a sci-fi kind of magazine, and it was called Vox Stellarum, Voice mm. of the Stars, and I thought, that's really cool. That'd be like a cool band name. But Vox Delorum, Voice of the Stars, that might be a little presumptuous in my vocal abilities, so let's change that to uh, Sonus Stellarum. But then it was really awkward to say, you know, too many S's, S's, and uh, my mom couldn't even remember it, so I just shortened it to Sonus because it looked really cool with the font. And I was like, oh, I'll put an umlaut over the O, whatever, I'm done. That's okay. <laughs> well, you know, umlaut over o, over the O makes it more metal automatically, oh, yeah. doesn't it? But the, oh, really, yeah. the really exciting thing about having the umlaut over the O, and I think I might have mentioned this on the birthday episode, is I, believe you did. I come from Hull in East Yorkshire, in the east of England. Well, the northeast of England. Well, it's weird. It's not technically the northeast, and it's not technically the east. It's kind of between the northeast and the east. But, you know, that's just one of those strange things about Britain and other named regions. But anyway, long story short, I'm from Hull. And in Hull, there's a very, very particular accent, and there's a very particular way people pronounce their vowels. There have been comedic um, Hull-speak manuals and things like that published over the years. But in Hull... A really hardcore Hull person wouldn't say Sonus, they'd say Sonus. So the pronounce O, like, almost like a long E-R. In Hull, you'd say, if you're after the shop, you say, I'm going on road. If you're from Westall, if you're from Eastall, you say, I'm going on road. So an umlaut over an O, and I looked this up at the time, means that you pronounce the O, er. So, uh, all, yeah, uh. yeah, So it makes it sound, if you say it like that, it makes it sound like you're from Eastall. So all of there a sudden, go. sounding like you're from Eastall becomes justified. And metal, that said, there are many times I wish Eastall would sink and float away into the North Sea. So let's not get too excited about it. And I, <laughs> I, don't, I, I won't go into the rivalries that exist from West Hull to East Hull because Hull's divided by a river called, fortunately enough, the River Hull. And if you're west of the river, you're black and white. And if you're east of the river, you're red and white. And it's an old sporting rivalry that goes back a long way. 
However, gotcha. just for the sake of being from Hull and not in Hull, I can kind of share that heritage with the red and whites on the other side of the river, who normally I probably wouldn't want to spend any time with. But that's that's a different story altogether. <laughs> so yeah, kind of got off on a bit of a rambling sidebar stroke tangent there. But yeah, Cernus, great name. So you've come up with a name. You've got some thoughts in your head. You've got some inspirations. What's your process? How do you go from having these ideas in your head, and particularly when they're so directly inspired and influenced by things like Robert E. Howard and Moorcock? What's the process? Because to a non-musician like myself, it seems like alchemy or magic. Yeah. Well, you know, I guess I guess mine's like a little bit different. I think a lot of people usually they'll start with like the lyrics first. I actually do the lyrics like very last that's like the last thing before i actually record the vocals and that's the final thing um so usually for me what will happen is i'll just be sitting there or you know at at uh, you know working some kind of job just spacing out and all of a sudden boom blaring into my head like the cosmic trumpets of some great deity just comes this amazing well i mean you know hopefully amazing to other people too but amazing to me at the time sound and then it's it's everything going at once so you know then once i kind of have that sound going in my head then it's like oh crap okay now i have to like parse through this and pick out okay what's the actual guitar line playing here what's the bass line doing what's what are the keyboards or synths doing if there are any uh what's what's the beat what are the drums doing is there a vocal What's the vocal I can put over this? So it's kind of like just this big blaring uh, mess that comes into my head, and then I gotta try and hopefully actually be able to play what I'm hearing, or at least as close to it as possible. And that's that's kind of fun, you know. Then it's just kind of like it's like someone just threw a jigsaw puzzle on the floor and it just splattered everywhere, and you know what the images that you're trying to put together. But now now you gotta pick up all the pieces and stuff. So mm. that's kind of how I approach it. And then once it's kind of finished there, then it's just kind of, okay, how do I make this sound interesting or, like, not be boring or, you know, what's another part, you know, here, you know, then, then, then it just becomes the more kind of, all right, typical songwriting kind of stuff. Mm. But, yeah, for me, that's usually how it happens. So, you know, you take a song like um, Out of the Eternal Champion. Have you got that concept based upon that story or that uh, kind of iconic figure or whatever it is in your head before you create the lyrics? Or before, sorry, before you create the song, or do you create the song and then think, right, what can I match to this? Where does the inspiration kind of yeah. jump in? So once I've, you know, once I've actually got like the thing kind of recorded, then it's, then I just kind of listen to it and I think, okay, what is this, what is this, you know, what, what, what pops, what images pop into my brain? Because I'm, I'm a very visual person. When I've, when I've got the sound, I've also generally got certain sort of images, you know, almost like it's like a soundtrack to something hmm. kind of popping through my head. So, um, yeah, for the Eternal Champion, actually, originally, I think the images I had were kind of more about Elric and Imrir. And that, hmm. that's, that was like its original title. But as I was writing it, um, the middle change because the baseline I wanted to do I just couldn't get a good take on but I actually you know I was just kind of jamming around and I got this other thing so instead of going to this sort of like Iron Maiden Steve Harris kind of you know kind of grooving thing which I just was not able to do convincingly enough to myself I kind of brought it down to this more dirgy kind of thing and then it became this whole big dramatic you know almost Pink Floyd sounding kind of thing yeah and then then from there I started getting more of like the eternal champion kind of vibes just you know just being pushed through the cosmos from body to body and just this crazy like never-ending struggle and trying to return to a place and this this whole thing that's 
That, mm. that just blew me away when I read the story, you know, when I was like 16. Mm. Um, just, I don't know, it just, that's where my brain went there and that's where the lyrics came in. Yeah. So you've got your Mocock influence on there, but for, for, for someone who hasn't been exposed to the album yet, what are the other core influences? Gotcha. Which is called, of course, is called Worlds Undreamed of. We have not actually mentioned the name, haven't we? That's so, true. <laughs> and and for everybody who's listening, get on Bandcamp, find Cernus, and it's Worlds Undreamed of. But what are the other key influences? Gotcha. So right after the Eternal Champion is the Hour of the Dragon, which basically is just a straight up like if I was like a bard retelling the Legend of Conan, it's it it is that book basically just kind of summarized into you know what I hope is a badass heavy metal song and that was really fun to do because you know i I, of course i came with the music first i have like the guitars and the synths there's this really cool part where they kind of like interweave uh, that i'm super proud of anyway um i'm just like this has to be this sounds like an epic soundtrack to some like great desert battle or something and then yeah you know i just happen to have carl edward wagner's version of the hour of the dragon just sitting right on my nightstand and i'm like that's the one. <laughs> it's got to be Conan and his most epic tale yet. So, yeah, so then I kind of try to do my best to translate the whole story of that big, long book into uh, a song, and I'm pretty proud of that one. I think that's probably, like, the best song on the album, i got to say. I have fist-pumped the air to uh, to Hour of the Dragon. I, I, I've just got to point that out, yeah. There you go. Happy it's to a, hear it's it. a mighty tune. It's a mighty <laughs> tune. Awesome, yeah. So, Robert E. Howard, Heavy Metal Magazine and the movie just the like that whole just dial just just weird sci-fi strange landscapes and things like that um so there's a bit of that like an astral projector and worlds undreamed of the uh, the title track and the final one which is the super chill relaxing kind of fade out it's kind of like my planet caravan mm-hmm. um i kind of think of it yeah that one's basically just kind of like like kind of just an, an ode to fantasy itself you know here mm. i am sitting in my room watching the whole world fall apart and what do i have but my music and my uh my books mm. to kind of keep me sane that was just, that was kind of what that one was about and then rock and roll necromancy is just it, it's kind of a a tribute to some of my heroes that we lost you know lemmy david bowie gets a mention just yeah. the fact that everyone keeps saying oh rock's dead rock's dead you know but it's not <laughs> so i'm gonna mm. revive it like a necromancer i guess if it is dead yeah uh so that's that's what that's about and it's just that that's just a fun song um yeah people say that every few years don't they you yeah know, they always some do. some fucking wise ass critic yeah. will or, or somebody with an axe to grind or somebody who just wants some fucking attention yep. will say rock is dead and it's it's bullshit Rock will never die. Never die. I've been saying no. that since the '60s, and uh, guess what? <laughs> guess how many rock and roll bands are out there? Maybe not at well, the Grammys, but yeah, you know what? I think, of course, you're on Bandcamp, yeah. and Bandcamp is a fucking treasure trove of rock music. It's totally. absolutely staggering how much great stuff there is on there. I think some some of my favorite stuff I've come across, and and you know, I, I buy whenever they come out is. The Doomed and Stoned compilations. Yeah. Which are absolutely phenomenal. And I think there's something like 16 or 17 of those now with 80-odd unique songs by unique artists across all of those. And when I started looking at, you know, kind of like the Mocock stuff, just go on Bandcamp and search Melnibone or Melnibone, for example, and yeah. see how many hits come up. <laughs> it's absolutely crazy. Yeah. Not just rock music, but there's a absolutely fantastic... Um, I say band, but again, it's, it's, it's one guy 
creating music called Imria, and it's it did an album called The Dreaming City, like a, an album of experimental electronica. There is so much great stuff out there. There's a Ukrainian band called Hawk Moon More, who um, don't seem to have done anything new for quite a while, but they did a, an EP which is purely Mocock focused, with one exception, which has something to do with Frodo Baggins. Um, <laughs> and it's, there's just so much great stuff out there, and and my God, Bandcamp is is a rabbit hole in and of itself. It's incredible. Uh, it, it truly is, and I mean, and you do really get this overwhelming sense that I mean, yeah, rock rock specifically is nowhere near dead. It's just you know, it's just sleeping, it's waiting, it's biding its time until mm-hmm. you know it comes back in a big way. Because you know, I mean, I've never been a hip hop guy. I've never really been in the a lot of the pop stuff. But I got to imagine, you know, these things kind of go in cycles, right? I mean, like look at bell bottom jeans. They they're back. You know, and I already had a pair of hand-me-downs from my dad, which I've been rocking for years now. Um, yeah. <laughs> all of a sudden, now I'm now I'm high fashion. But you know, these these things just go in cycles, and you know, I mean, we're seeing like bands like uh, Greta Van Fleet becoming big big names, I guess. You know, being uh, all over the yeah. news and magazines and things like that. So I think there really is kind of a sort of budding resurgence in that kind of thing, because I mean, you know, what are you going to do? You know, where are you going to turn to? You know, music these days, it's all just sounds kind of the same now. So you need something new, which was old, but is new again now, because it hasn't been around for a while, to uh, come in and freshen things up, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's interesting that you mention the return of bell bottoms. I'm, I'm actually old enough to remember them last time around, although I was, <laughs> I was, I was too young to have a pair. But I, d- I do distinctly remember them, and, and I don't know if it was a thing elsewhere, but it all we called them wafters. And uh, wafters, yeah, <laughs> <I like that. laughs> because they would waft about in the breeze. Yeah, and uh, I think I, I don't recall seeing any recently in Bradford. I don't recall seeing any in Hull. But I think wafters, stroke flares, stroke bell bottoms these days. I think you'd have to have a very specific aesthetic um, to be able to carry that off. And if it's if it's if you're a rocker or you're a member of Cathedral or any of those bands, then <laughs> but by God, you can get away with it. You there can get you away go. with, and I, and I will celebrate and fight for your right to wear wafters. Wouldn't work for me because I'm because I'm, I'm a fat guy and I got fat legs, and you don't want to see fat <laughs> blokes in wafters. But yeah, I'm I'm all for it. So Sonus, what's next? Well, actually, I've got about two more vocal tracks that I got to finish uh, for two different songs. Um, on the next EP, and then that thing's pretty much in the can and ready to go. Uh, get sent off to mixing and mastering. So that was really cool. I had uh, two old tracks that I recorded um, with some friends of mine uh, in the in a project that I was in uh, with them. That I I just got those ones back, and these were pretty pretty cool songs. So I was really happy to be able to uh, get the opportunity to to finish them, do them right, make them rocking. And uh, one of them um, I'm thinking is 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 like gonna be like my masterpiece. You know, my my current masterpiece you know right um so i'm trying to get that one right uh right now um nailed down that one but yeah pretty much that one is it's going to be called usurper of the universe and it's got this (laughs) oh yeah (laughs) Yeah. i thought of that title you know probably after a big bong rip or something a few years back (laughs) and it just it was just so cool i had to i had to finish that song so i finally got the ability to do that and uh, I just got actually the album art. I'll have to show you. It, it looks kind of like 
a Mayflower, Michael Moorcock meets Edgar Rice Burroughs kind of nice. meets Conan sort of thing. It's just, it's, you know, it looks like a heavy metal magazine comic. So it's totally like just, just a cartoony comic book kind of aesthetic I'm going for. This one's going to be like a bit more fun. I feel like the first one was maybe a little, little, little too serious at times. Uh, this one's got a, a few more rocking, kind of almost silly songs. So it, 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 it's going to be fun. Well, you know what? It sounds really positive and exciting because nobody ever likes to to worry or get angsty over their difficult second album. And oh, if you're no. <laughs> uh, if you're full of beans and excited about it, and you've got a new angle, and if you've got a title like Usurper of the Universe, you're not going to go far wrong. There you go. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty <laughs> excited. It's going to be fun. So, what are the timescales on that being available? Oh yeah. So, well, let's see. I'm having it mixed and mastered um, at the end of this month. So, you know, it's good for me to get a deadline because I'm a horrible procrastinator and I'll just let this stuff sit for, you know, weeks and not touch it and then I'll go back. So, gave myself a deadline. End of April, that's it. I got two more vocal tracks and then just whatever other kind of little finishing touches I want to put here and there. So then the album will be mixed and mastered, take like a couple weeks or something, and then from there we will see. I might shop it around to some record labels because it's good to uh, get some help with these things, especially mm. from a promotional uh, or physical release kind of standpoint, because man, that stuff is expensive. I mean, for like a mm. hundred vinyls, it's like two grand or something like that. It's Oof, insane, boy. you know. So you know, being being one man in a band, <laughs> that means mm. all the expenses fall on my shoulders there. So yeah. you know, I do the best I can. But it's uh, especially during a pandemic, it's a little uh, that, that 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 becomes a little bit more difficult. But yeah, I'm thinking around May or June it'll mm. be out. You know, I also want to build up some uh, some promotion this time a little bit, release some singles, and uh, mm. just kind of build up some excitement. Because the first one, I was just you know drunk on my birthday, and I'm like, publish, it's there, <laughs> go buy it. Who I don't know. <laughs> you know, so I want to put a little bit more thought into the release this time. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. It, are, are people connecting with it though? Yeah, you know, it's really weird. I mean, I'm 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 really not like a big social media guy, but social media is the only way you kind of I guess spread this stuff around these days. Mm. So, I'm always amazed, you know, even like the other day someone bought it and I was like, "Where did you even hear this from? Like, how <laughs> mm. How did you even find this?" So, somehow, some way, people are still finding it here and there, but it's definitely, you know, that's that's the toughest thing. It's not mm. the hours and hours that you spend actually learning the instruments it's not the additional hours you spend writing the songs and the additional hours you spend recording and mixing and doing all this other stuff that is the challenge it's the okay you've done all that you've got you know your finished work now how do you actually get people to listen to it mm -hmm. now that that's that's the challenge that's the thing i'm trying to figure out now so yeah I mean, you've had some cracking reviews. I've I've, I've spotted you um, referencing some of those reviews, but yeah, it's, it's a tricky thing, isn't it? You you get it out into into the world, but who's who's watching? Yeah, you know who who's looking in that direction at that specific moment? Yeah, to pick up on it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but it deserves to be heard because it's fucking fantastic. And our I suppose our local equivalent of 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 your highway going up to San Francisco is uh, is the M sixty two. Which connects uh, the east coast and the west coast of the UK, right up here in the north. And for many years, that was my commuting route, and that's what I would do with the majority of my music listening. And I'm kind of looking forward to the point where I've got a long run, I've got a long drive, and I can stick 
Weldon dreamed of and slap the volume up nice and loud in my A6 and uh, probably head to the seaside for fish and chips, but by God, rock out on the way there. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man, fish and chips sounds good. Yeah. Oh. Well, funnily enough, there's, there's there's like a connection with with the British seaside and rock music and metal because when I was a kid, in fact, when I was a teenager, whenever you went to a seaside town, like some of our local seaside towns, a place like Bridlington and Scarborough and Whitby, the kids who were manning the um, the burger stands or the ice cream parlors or any of those things were all depressed, spotty teenagers in Iron Maiden t-shirts or Motorhead t-shirts, and and seaside towns were a hotbed a hotbed of young metal kids and and the best nightclub the best metal nightclub i ever came across was in scarborough it was absolutely superb so that i always connect good quality rock music and metal with the coast always have done and i'll I'll never shake it that's awesome yeah you know san francisco also is is a pretty big uh kind of underground heavy metal area i mean metallica's from there yeah you know High on Fire, they're, they're a big band uh, these days. They come from, like, yeah, Oakland, San Jose, stuff like that. So this whole Bay Area, is it, it's pretty big with that, but it's not quite, like, you don't really see out and about a whole lot of, like, yeah, that's a metal guy all that often, as much as mm. you'd think, unless, you know, you're going to an actual show. Yeah. Um, and then you realize, oh, yeah, no, there's a thriving community here for this kind of music. And yeah. it never went away. It's it's peculiar, isn't it? Because now th- there was a time, not so much now, but round about seven or eight years ago, things like Iron Maiden t-shirts became like a, a fashion accessory. Yeah, where people were almost just in the same way that when 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 I was of an age, people were were buying secondhand Paisley kite collared shirts from a place called Fanthorps in Hull. But but it was more commoditized than that. But when I was a teenager. If you were a metalhead, you looked like a metalhead. You looked like a metalhead, you looked like a goth, you looked like you were a punk, and ev- everything was very clearly defined in those days, whereas yeah. everything's become disappointingly homogenised now. Yeah. Which I think it's a shame, and I, I, I kind of miss that. I miss being able to identify people's passions and desires kind of straight away. I mean, th- there were always ups and downs to that. You know, I can remember some of the kids I knocked about with were punks, and you, this was certainly something you could get away with in those days, not so much now. But one of them used to, he, he painted these Doc Martens. He had, what were they, 24 old knee-high Doc Martens that all the punk kids used to wear with, with drainpipe jeans. And he had a, a Star of David on one boot and a swastika on the other. And, and huh. when, when, Yeah. And when you think back, it's like, right, yeah, there was this strange kind of uniform mentality with with the kind of things you're into and it got quite outrageous and yeah you, you, kind of in ways that you would you would not only would you never see anymore but nobody would ever get away with that yeah <laughs> anymore this this guy is is now a teacher and he's married with kids and it was never anything other than an anarchist you know yeah um just like a naive anarchist and that kind of naive anarchism was was all over the place when I was a teenager. But it was always accompanied by fucking great music, yeah. really great music. And oh, yeah, yeah the great music's still there. You've just got to dig a lot harder to find it. For sure. Yeah, that is. You know, that, that's that's something I definitely do uh, as well. It's just, you know, wear the influence. You know, on my sleeve, on my shirt, mm. on my jacket. You know, wherever I can put it. <laughs> yeah. There's the influence, man, right there. Yeah, but it is kind of weird. I think like like like. It becoming like this fashion statement 
I think, honestly, most of that just kind of goes back to how effective and awesome the album art and the logos were, mm. you know? I mean, think of Iron Maiden. I mean, that's yeah. what got me into one was the awesome album artwork. Like, I yeah, yeah. It, I'm like, I gotta know what this sounds like. Yeah, same here. I was 11, and I saw the album cover to Killers in oh, yeah. a Hull, Hull record shop, a, a well-known and well-loved Hull record shop called Sydney Scarborough's, which we all affectionately knew as Sid Scabs. And yeah, just as an eleven-year-old looking at the cover to kill us, and and just suddenly becoming obsessed with Derek Riggs, yeah, and e- even to the point where I would put Derek Riggs' little um, mo- motif that he had on all his pictures, like his kind of weird signature symbol. I had that on all my exercise books. I had it on my my <laughs> kit bag. I had it everywhere. I would, I would I would draw it absolutely everywhere. Yeah, I was obsessed with Derek Riggs. Uh, I think it was a real shame when they stopped using him. But uh, but he's he's still out there, isn't he? He's, and he's still making a few quid off the Eddie brand, you know. Which That's good right. luck to him. It's it's a shame that it's, I, I do really appreciate that vinyl has come back. So you know, not not just vinyl, but some of the vinyl now, the hundred eighty gram vinyl is is of such good quality as oh, well. Unbelievable. Um, but it's, it's nice to have album sleeves, gatefolds, and all that business. It's it's really really lovely thing to have. There's nothing better. Than a nice gatefold sleeve. Right Looking back good. here, you can see yeah. my vinyl collection. <laughs> nice. I'm a fan myself. Yeah, yeah. There, there really is nothing like it. And you know that, I think also it, it, it is very prevalent in the rock and roll community. But it really does. It kind of just speaks to the album as a piece of art. You know, mm. it's something you want to hold. It's something you want to look at as you're listening to it. It's a whole other experience. Just like, like, like an actual paper book. You know, there's you can't. You just can't quite replicate that like digitally. Mm. It's just not the same. It's like kind of empty calories. You know what I mean? It's like yeah. yeah, you're drinking it. Yeah, okay, but it's I don't know, there's something about it that just you can't you can't replicate. No, you know you can't. A, a few years ago, we went to a place called Grimsby, and funnily enough, Phil's from Grimsby, no. and Grimsby, Grimsby is separated from Hull by uh, whereas Hull is separated into East and West by the River Hull, which is fairly narrow. Um, Hull and Grimsby are separated by the River Humber, which is probably three quarters of a mile wide. It's a big, big river, three quarters of a mile wide at its widest. Certainly, the point where you where you're kind of looking at Grimsby from Hull. So, although. We lived in towns or cities that were only maybe separated by a mile and a half or something like that. When when we were kids, there was no bridge. So all there was was a, a paddle steamer. <laughs> this makes me sound really fucking old, I should point out. But anyway, I'll get to the point. So we went to uh, Grimsby to see Anvil a few nice. years ago. Me and some of my mates. And Anvil played in a, a Hells Angels club <laughs> in Grimsby. <laughs> Uh, they, they were supported by a, a young German thrash metal band called Rosette, and uh, they, they were absolutely awesome. They were, so, they were so energetic and so excited to be there, and there was only about 20 people watching at that point. There was only about 50 people when Anvil were playing, but there was only about 20 people watching at that point. But they were stood up there, they were loving it, they were fucking shredding, and the, the songs, he would announce a new song, he would say, this song is about nuclear war! <laughs> In a really strong German accent, it was, it was absolutely super. Yeah! Yeah. Give me more, and uh, and and they had the merchandise table, and they had all three of their albums on vinyl. So I'm pissed up by this point. So I bought I bought all of their albums on CD initially. Then I went back at the end of the night and bought them all on vinyl. And they were so they were so chuffed, they were high fiving each other that somebody had bought the vinyl. And I brought it home, and and I put it on. And the the quality of the vinyl was just absolutely superb. 
and th- there is really truth to the fact that if you listen to something on CD, well, okay, but if you put the vinyl on, and you, even with the nice hundred eighty gram vinyl, you've got that soft crackle and that warmth. Oh, yeah. oh it's, it's a different, yeah. it's a different experience. It's like it brings sitting by the fire to you, even if you're not actually sitting by a fire. It's the warm crackle and pop of the vinyl. Yeah, yeah, it, it's really interesting too because actually, like the vinyl, you're getting less frequencies, so the CD is actually like the highest, you know, I guess quality you could say. It's got yeah. like basically the full spectrum, everything. Like you're not missing anything on the CD version, but it's very kind of cool how like if you actually just sort of smush in that bandwidth a little bit, you just you just yeah. get this perfectly, just amazingly warm sound that only vinyl can really do. It's, yeah, it's, it's, it's really interesting. It's definitely true that when the days of CD came around, I, I would listen to albums that I'd had for years on vinyl and hear things that I'd never heard before. You know, yeah. that that high, that crisp, high fidelity sound. But nevertheless, there's just something warm and comforting about vinyl, and it's yeah. I don't know. I don't think I'll ever get I'll, I'll ever get away from it. It's like coal fires are filthy, but they're better than central eating. <laughs> <You know? laughs> It's just when when you're brought up with it and you know you kind of appreciate it and you have all those built-in racket feelings associated with it. Oh, it's just yeah. warm. It's just great. You know, so I'm actually an archaeologist and uh, I've worked in Ireland uh, a number of years. Yeah. And there is nothing like coming back from the field just soaking wet because of course it's piss and rain most of the time. Yeah. And you go into a little pub and they put the peat fire on and it's yeah. just the smell of that peat and like the mm. warmness just sitting by like the furnace right there yeah. you know you know i a couple minutes ago i was completely drenched you know totally covered in mud and everything sit by that peat fire get a nice guinness and there's just you know there's nothing mm. more comfortable in the world than that yeah hard to beat isn't it yeah truly is it's hard to beat when, when i was a kid we had uh what's what's colloquially known as a yorkshire range um, which is uh, the house we lived in was from the 18, I think it was built in 1895, so it was a big old Victorian townhouse. And it had a Yorkshire range in the kitchen, which was a black cast iron range with a coal fire in it and, a, and an oven and a warming drawer, as they called it, um, and next to it. And I would, I would come home from school in the depth of winter, probably covered in mud or whatever, and go into the kitchen to the smell of um, freshly baking bread, baking in the oven by a roaring coal fire. And there's... Pff, it's hard to beat. Yeah. It's really hard to beat. <laughs> yeah. So, you is your degree in archaeology? Yeah. Well, technically, in the States, it's anthropology and archaeology is like a subset yeah. of that. It's like totally the other way around, I believe, in uh, Europe. Uh, but, yeah, so I've, I've worked, you know, around the Bay Area on Native American sites. I've been to Ecuador. I've worked on Incan sites, pre-Incan, nice. Spanish colonial sites, and I've worked uh, in Ireland. A uh, number of seasons on a uh, Norman castle, yeah, in this little town called Ballantubber, which is just the most adorable little place, and everybody there's so nice and friendly. And so you know, mm. I keep coming back because it's just, it's just, just a great little, little, little place, you know. Well, I look forward to your um, your sky-clad like Irish folk metal album <laughs> period, going a little go. bit further down the line in a few albums time That's when it. you're in, in, inspired by uh, I don't know the Middle Ages or, or whatever it may be. There's there's tons of inspiration there as well, isn't there? Oh yeah, That's another thing too. You know, I mean, like Thin Lizzy, I love that band. You know, yeah. and Led Zeppelin, like their acoustic, you know, sort of medieval jaunts, excursions into that sort of style. I always loved that as a kid, you know, because it yeah. sounded medieval, and I was like, whoa. 
knights and swords. I love it, you know? <laughs> mm, mm. And the theme continues, but yeah, yeah, I mean, World's Undreamed of kind of was that, like that song is yeah. a little bit kind of like a, maybe a trippier version of something like that, but uh, definitely. So what else are you listening to at the moment then? I mean, you've talked about your original inspirations, like the older stuff, the 70s stuff. Is there any kind of modern music that's doing it for you? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it nowadays it's all kind of lumped under like stoner rock. Hmm. You know, but it's basically what that just means is it's bands that are really just kind of inspired by that 70s sound. And that's really like the most kind of fruitful sort of genre of heavy music, metal, rock that's kind of really going on today. And there's there's a ton of great bands in that. Um, and that, that kind of started in the in the 90s, really. One of my favorites, actually, and they're just about to release like a new, sorry. There's the cider coming up there. Uh, they're just about to release a uh, a new album of just covers of like yeah. crazy obscure psych rock songs from the '60s, but uh, Monster Magnet, and they're they're a massive oh, influence yeah. on me. They're still going. Yeah, the great. They're still going. They're the last album. Um, I don't know if I can say say the title here if the F word is gonna fly, but uh, it's uh, yeah that band never disappoints. I'm a huge fan of them. They're a big inspiration on uh, me as well because basically. You know, what I wanted to do was kind of like, okay, what if Black Sabbath meant Hawkwind and the Stooges? Like, that's the band that I want to make. And they already made that band. So (laughs) all of a sudden I find Monster Magnet. I'm like, what? Whoa. Yeah. This already exists. It's like perfect blend. So, um, yeah, them, Orange Goblin. I mean, oh, my God. uh, Sleep, High on Fire. Uh, Those are like more kind of like new, well, not uh, new is relative, you know, but modern. Yeah, well, I'm right with you on the Monster Magnet. I, I think I was 19 when my mate Pat went to university and he sent me a cassette with uh, a couple of albums on it and I cannot for the life of me remember what was on side two. But but side one was Spina God. Oh, yeah. And, and um, I, I think there was there was an EP before that wasn't the Tab. Uh, yeah, Tab, the fully instrumental one. Yeah. Yeah, oh, yeah. Uh, but but Spina God was the first one I came across, and I was like, "What the fuck is this? This is yeah. absolutely incredible!" And I think about about a year later, I, I, listened, I wore that tape out, and about a year later, Super Judge came out, and there was just no looking back. Yeah. And I think Dopes to Infinity is one of my favorite albums of the last thirty years. Truly, I, I, I like a lot of their other albums. I like, you know, I like um, Power Trip. You know, for, for for what it was, it was much more commercial. It really launched them into the stratosphere, didn't it? But I always go back to Dubs to Infinity. Yeah. It's fucking fantastic. It's, yeah. it's truly amazing. Dave Winhorst yeah. a genius. I mean, nobody yeah. can write like him. It's just the metaphors, the imagery, the crazy comic book references. I mean, you know, yeah. being a big comic book nerd myself, I mean, I just flipped out the first time, you know, I heard Space Lord on the radio, like in my dad's truck when I, I must have been like nine years old. We were just driving around. He, he was at yeah. the University of Florida at the time. We're just driving around. I heard this thing, and I like it just stuck in my brain. And I'm like, I have to find out what that is. And literally, mm. years later, like eight years later, I think I finally discovered, oh, Monster Magnet, Space Lord. That's what I heard. That was this absolutely yeah. insane song that just stuck in my mind like this entire time. Yeah, big, big fan of them. Yeah, great live band as well. I saw oh, them yeah. on the. Uh, I can't remember what was the. I think it was the God Says No tour, or the one after that. I can't remember. I think it was God Says No tour. What a terrific, what a terrific show! That was, you oh, know, yeah. no frills, just balls out rock and roll. It was absolutely oh, yeah. amazing. Yeah, um, I, I'm I think I'm pr- 
pretty much looking forward to the next Mastodon album as well. But um, yeah, that sounds great. Yeah, so I, I did. I did get the last um, Monster Magnet album. Funnily enough, off Bandcamp because. I stopped buying CDs a while ago and, and discovered Bandcamp. It's kind of become my go-to. Yeah, so I think probably between uh, Monster Magnet, Mastodon, Crippled Black Phoenix are probably the three bands where everything they do is an auto buy the moment it comes out, and nice. I've got to have it. Yeah, yeah, so great stuff. So we've talked about Sonus, but of course, Mocock has been the core of so many different bands and and Uvers and Mocock himself is is obviously a musician and a collaborator, but who for you has really nailed Moorcock? I mean, you know, it's it, it, it's it's a great thing when you have Blue Oyster Cult and Hawkwind, mm. um, you know, behind you uh, musically. And, you know, Mike's got them both. And I love both of those bands so much, I can't even begin to describe. But Hawkwind truly was like a religious experience, almost like no other band band kind of like you know it, it, i haven't really felt that way about a band since i heard led zeppelin you know but i don't really remember hearing led zeppelin for the first time because i was a little bit little, little tiny baby but hawkwind yeah. i remember hearing hawkwind for the first time and i remember that experience they they really just did something totally different something that's never truly been completely replicated you know mm. hawkwind had the energy of proto-punk which mm. i also love you know, the Stooges, the MC5, uh, a big, big fan. Hawkwind had that energy, and they took it into the stratosphere with crazy sci-fi lyrics, fantasy. They have one of my all-time favorite guitar players, Hugh Lloyd Langton, who's a mm -hmm. massive, massive influence on my own playing. And just, you know, I, I remember the first time actually hearing, you know, Chronicles of the Black Sword, and just sitting there and just being blown away by this guy's solos, by the songs, you know, staring at the album cover. It might have helped that incidentally I had uh, taken a tab of a certain psychedelic <laughs> substance. Uh, but it was a very, you know, absolutely mind-melting experience. It was, it was, it was, you know, it was the perfect music for that time and for every other mm. time because you don't necessarily need any of that stuff to love Hawkwind, but if you are on that stuff, I highly recommend Hawkwind <laughs> mm. because it's perfect for it. Yeah. Um, you know, the layers that Hawkwind has, the synths, like, you know, you've got Nick Turner on the flute, saxophone. I mean, my God, these guys are just absolutely insane. And then you've got, you know, one of my heroes, Lemmy Kilmister on the bass for, you know, the first mm. four or five albums there, just really just driving it, making it, you know, Oh my God! Then you have yeah. brilliant lyrics by Robert Calvert as well, and he's his own like a brilliant frontman on his own right. Yeah, that band is truly fantastic. And through all these different years and lineup changes, you've got the constant Dave Brock, yeah, who himself just absolutely, I I think underappreciated genius. I mean, you know. All, all like like the the uh, you know best bands in the world and all that stuff like that, or best guitarists or whatever, you know. Yeah. Give, give Dave Brock a shout out, man. That guy, that guy deserves it. You know, he's been yeah, the the don't get the credit the due to yeah. Hawkwind, and I, I think in some ways they're they're perhaps agents of their own, not their not their own downfall or demise, but I think the fact that they went through distinct ages. Almost, or or um, or waves, uh, yeah. is is probably one of the things that um, that maybe 
kind of held back that that critical appraisal. But there is there's a lot of critical reappraisal going on at the moment. The, I highly recommend Joe Banks's book Days of the Underground. Check um, that out. Yeah, the is uh, is uh, written a uh, and actually Ian Abraham's book Sonic Assassins as well is also excellent. A yeah. couple of really fantastic books on Hawkwind that. And I think we are getting something of a critical reappraisal now, and it's 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 high time. Yeah. But I know for me personally, it's it's interesting that you mentioned that like you kind of came out of the womb almost with Led Zeppelin in your ears. Um, it was it was similar for me in a way, but with Jethro Tull. Nice. So I can't remember the first time I ever heard Jethro Tull because Jethro Tull was just an ever present in my life from the moment I was born, and my dad had uh, he, he wasn't really a, a rock fan which is the interesting thing because there was every chance he could put a Jennifer Rush album on or something like that <laughs> when I was a kid. But for the most part, it was it was a big Jethro Tull fan. And I think Jethro Tull were very, very similar in that respect to Harkwind in that they had very, very distinct waves of sound that they went through. Also, similarly, massive lineup changes. And similarly, are a band that, whilst they were super appreciated at the time, they've never really had the... Uh, the credit that they deserve. I think they're quite similar bands in that respect, but, you know, obviously, Hawkwind were more acid-drenched. Um, oh, yeah. And, you know, fair play to them. I mean, I think I didn't listen to Hawkwind when I was tripping. I was probably more likely to listen to Tangerine Dream or... Um, awesome on great its, choice. Yeah, on this <laughs> or any of those things. Uh, but, yeah, and, I don't know. I really like early Hawkwind. I, I, but I probably lose... I think I've said this before. I lose a little bit of geek cred in the, I think, the 80s sound for bands that were around in the 70s, I, I didn't take to it. Yep, and again, I think there's some similarity with Hawkwind and Jethro Tull again there. I think when they adopted yep. that 80s sound and will had less of the sprawling sound that yeah. the 70s albums had, that they started to... I started to lose lose touch with them a little bit, but very recently I did pick up the live chronicles. Oh, yeah. yeah, picked up a second-hand copy on vinyl, and it's upstairs waiting for the next time I go up and have a violent a vinyl session. I'm going to give it a critical reappraisal of my own, oh, I think, and, and give that a good listen. Please, please, yeah, please do that. That is, I I would say probably have to if I had to pick one Hawkwind album, you know, on a desert island or whatever, uh, it's going to be Live Chronicles. I mean. My God, the recording of that is so amazing. And Hugh Lloyd Langton is in top form. I mean, my yeah. God, he's just shredding all over that thing like only he could really do. Yeah, that is a truly fantastic, just perfect slab of everything, you know, th- that I could ever, like, want Hawkwind to be if I, if I ever mm-hmm. got the chance to see them live. Now, I did actually see Nick Turner's Hawkwind live, which was awesome because he was just yeah. doing all that early, early Hawkwind stuff. And actually, uh, Jello Biafra of the Dead Kennedys jumped up on stage and started doing it. And actually, at the time, I didn't know there was Jello Biafra of the Dead Kennedys, yeah. but we were headbanging and moshing together because I, you know, I made my way right to the front. This is the only time I'm going <laughs> to be able to see Hawkwind, so I'm, you know, I'll, I'm getting up there, and this, you know, this middle-aged dude's just there, and he's just, he's thrashing like only a true punk could do. Yeah. I don't know who he is. I don't recognize him, but uh, it's like, yay, man. What song do you want them to play? I'm like, man, I really hope they play Ejection. You know, I got to meet Nick Turner beforehand, and they shook his hand. He's like, what song would you like us to play? 
like, ejection, please, sir, would be amazing. And he's like, oh. You know, then back to Jello. He's like, oh, no, man, they're not playing that. Yeah, I was like, oh, really? Oh, well, you know, that's okay. I like it all anyway. He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah they're not playing it on this tour. Next song, Nick Turner welcomes who to the stage but the guy I was just hanging out with and moshing with. And uh, what do they play but ejection? So nice. right off the bat, you know. <laughs> yeah. Fantastic. Absolutely amazing. It's funny you should mention Jello Biafra, and I think I think I might have mentioned this when I was talking to Ian Abrams as well, but I didn't I didn't kind of uh, mention this because you're the first guest I've ever had on who's who's talked about acid. But one of the <laughs> other things that one of the other things we used to really really enjoy back in the day when we were tripping was um, there was two things there was there was a butthole surfers video which was like them at home on their ranch which was fucking hilarious. Yeah. And the other thing was a, a ministry live video. Where they're playing in um, in a nightclub and there's a wire mesh and everybody's throwing bottles at them and there's shattered glass flying all over the place. But Jello Biafra gets up and does poetry in between songs, Robert Calvert style. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is um, I distinctly remember that. And, it was, and at the time, I, I didn't have, I, I didn't know who the Dead Kennedys were. Some of my friends were into the Dead Kennedys. Jello Biafra to me. If you ever mention his name, all I can ever think of is tripping, watching this ministry video <laughs> with him doing doing poetry in between, um, I don't know, Stigmata and, and yeah. The Man Is a Terrible Thing to Test or, or, or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Well, there oh, you God. go. Happy days. Yeah. yeah. I mean, Fucking te- the idea of doing it now would terrify me, but yeah, yeah. happy days. Yeah. All, 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 all good things, you know. Where they there's need there's to a be. time and a place and a, a phase in one's life where that's, Absolutely. that's a magical thing. Yeah, I don't know if uh, I'd be so so eager to jump back into that anytime soon, but that does really speak to the influence of Hawkwind. Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, obviously, you know, where did Joe Biafra get that from? If not Robert Calvert, yeah. you know. And, and that's the thing too. I mean, so many of these bands, you know, obviously, uh, from the Sex Pistols. What's his name? What's his name? John Johnny Rock. Rotten from the Sex yeah. Pistols. Big, massive fan of Hawkwind. Um, it, you know, it's like I think he has a famous quote of like, "Everyone else is shit except for Hawkwind," and that really tells you something. It, it does, yeah, and and it, to to some extent, it allows you to slightly forgive him for being. <laughs> You know, a, a Brexit supporting Tory voting Just guy a, who, who basically is is best known in the UK now for doing butter adverts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, <laughs> Every, everybody falls off their pedestal eventually, don't they? Yeah, yeah. very true. Some farther than others. Yeah, but there yeah. you have it. Yeah, it's true. Well, you know what? On that acid drenched final note <laughs> <laughs> i think uh, i'll just say it's been uh, it's been a real pleasure to have you on and to talk about all these things and also to tease out of me stories about tripping back in the day for the first time on this podcast um <laughs> but i really look forward to talking to you again when the next iteration of cernus hits the airwaves and of course for everybody who's listening find well done dreamed of on Bandcamp, but also you'll find uh, some tracks off that album on breakfast in the ruins radio that's right. You can Give find that on listen. absolutely. You can find that on Radio Garden and Live Online Radio and various other places. But Dave, absolutely brilliant to talk to you, and really appreciate it. Thanks for coming on. Hey, the honor's mine. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you.
Okay, we're back in Derry and Tom's, and I've got with me Derek, a.k.a. Imria, an artist I found after our first deep dive into Moorcock and looking at his presence in musical spheres. Welcome to Derry and Tom's. Thanks. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, it's really, really lovely to have you. Now, going back a while, when we started doing some episodes around music, I had a conversation with a dungeon synth artist known as Elric. And he bemoaned the fact that there isn't as much Moorcock in the musical stew as there was back in the, the heady days of Hawkwind and Blue Oyster Cult and all the space rock and, and the Nawabum of the 70s and 80s. So aside from already having had uh, Dave and Nathan on all lined up to be on the show talking about their projects Sonus and Corum, I wanted to test this a little bit. So I had a little bit of a search around Bandcamp and came across your album fairly quickly, The Dreaming City. And of course, under the name Imria... I was instantly hooked. Um, not only that, but you describe your work as bleak electronica, so that sucked <laughs> me in a little bit further because that's right up my street. And also the artwork, which I absolutely love. So welcome to the show, and I'm really, really looking forward to talking to you about not just about, you know, Mocock, but about your work and about anything else that you're working on. It's really, really lovely to have you. Sure, thanks. It's, I'm glad to be here. Uh, you know, you, you had reached out to me, and, uh, you know, like, not in a rude way, but I, like I was like, "Oh my god, a podcast about Morcock! <laughs> this guy's going to be like a crushing nerd," you know. <laughs> but, but then I listened to the first episode, and, and like you were very, you guys, you know, were like your conversations, sort of, especially your conversation about how to say Melna Bonet was like, yeah, I yeah. don't, I never knew how to say it. I never said it out loud, you know. Yeah, yeah. But you guys approach it with an attitude that is like, you know, tongue in cheek and appreciating it for the cheese that it is. And when it's good, it's good. And when it's yeah, absolutely. And, and and now, don't get me wrong, it, hiding deep inside me, there is a hardcore nerd. <laughs> oh, true, me too, but I also but, laugh about it, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But um, fortunately, uh, we have a couple along the way and we, you know, we, we talk about what we like, what we don't like, and we just have fun with it. And yeah, it's, so good, it's, yeah. it's really, really great to, to have you on board. Now, straight away, one of the things that really interested me was the description Bleak Electronica. Mm-hmm. You know, we're going to talk about your music. We'll talk about Mocock a bit, obviously. But, you know, what what drew you into music and where are your musical influences coming from in, in uh, order for you to start recording this kind of music? And how would you describe it to somebody who's not accessed your work? It came out of, uh, I've always played in bands. Um, I'm a, mostly a bass player. I like started off as a guitar player, but then everyone plays guitar. Mm. So people needed bass players, so. It wasn't a hard transition. So I got, you know, to play in more bands as a bass player than a guitar player. But I I was like at a point where I was at a lull of being in bands and I wanted to make music still. Mm. So I just, um, initially the idea was that it was going to be a, like a one man black metal band thing, which is, they are many and you can throw a dart at a, you yeah. know, wall of band names and one of them is going to be a one-man black metal band thing and it's it's also like i had started writing and it, it was just it's fun to do but it's my comfort zone it's what i yeah. what i like to write and not even what i like to listen to necessarily which was the other problem it was just the music i knew how to make but i listened to far more interesting and weird music than that so i wanted to force myself i like got rid of the guitar i bought a little midi controller and i was like mm. all right this is all you can use what can you make what what's it going to sound like so mm. and then i just tried from there and i just forced it's completely uncomfortable making this music it was like now i feel good about it I'm about two years into doing it and i've produced a lot of music in that time but 
it's all been me figuring out how to and learning how to. So it's, it's all new to me too. So yeah. <laughs> and I didn't I didn't know how to describe it. Bleak Electronica seemed like the most accurate. I don't know. Yeah. Well, I, I don't know how many other people out there this would work for, but as soon as I saw it, I was like, mm, I need some of that. I need some of that in my life. Well, one of the one of the most fascinating things is, and of course, you know, evidently from the moment that I spotted your work on Bandcamp is that evidently Mocock was in the DNA of your work right from the outset. Yeah. You know, it's the artist, Monica, is, is in, in Maria. The first album was called The Dream in City. Interestingly, The Dream in City dropped on Bandcamp um, in September, I think, 2019, mm-hmm. which was the same month we put out our first episode. So oh, while yeah. you've been going along on your journey, exploring and expanding your, your art with, with uh, the, the kind of work you're doing, we're kind of following a similar track with the podcast cool. learning as we're going along. So there's yeah. some nice symmetry there. Um, but it's absolutely incredible to me that The Dream in City dropped on Bandcamp on, in September 2019, and you've now got 18 releases on Bandcamp. Yeah. I mean, it may well be the case that it was perfect timing for you when a pandemic was literally <laughs> unraveling um, the world around us. But 18 releases in, yeah. in a little over 18 months, that's incredible. Yeah, you know, it's uh, I don't, like, this isn't my career. Like, yeah. I make music to pass the time. And sometimes when I'm more busy and more stressed at work, that just means I'll stay up six hours at night writing music just to, mm. like, you know, it's like therapy. It's just processing my life. And then... I don't know. It, it, I think releasing too much too often is a is a bad thing, but I do it anyway because I don't know what else to do with it. I just mm. I create this stuff and it's like oh, just put it out. I don't know. One day someone's gonna listen to it. I don't, I don't like it's not. Yeah. I'm not trying to push it and trying to like have this be my life and be known for it. It's just this is how I pass my time. And sometimes I think it's decent enough that if someone wants to listen to it. Cool. Like mm. you know. <laughs> Absolutely. So, why why Maria and why why the Dreaming City? So, what what's your kind of relationship with Mocock? Um, so, when I was I was in high school still, I uh, I bought a t shirt um, by the band Arturis, who are like this avant garde uh, black metal band, a side project of multiple. All the guys are in other bands and whatnot. It's a common thing in that scene. But the T-shirt had an eight-pointed star on it, hmm. the the chaos star. Um, and at the time, I just I know I had seen that symbol in artwork throughout, like the world of metal. Like yeah. you know, you see that everywhere. But I, I usually I don't like to wear a shirt unless I know like what the symbols are on it, or if it's something in another language, I'll look at the hmm. translation. So I like you know Googled eight-pointed star or whatever, and then then I started reading about. Michael Moorcock and then the characters in the world of Eric and Elric and all of the things mentioned. I was like, oh yeah, that's from that Blind Guardian song. Or like, oh yeah, that's from Hawkwind. Oh, that's yeah, yeah. Like it it all came together. Tigers of Pentang, that mm. you know, like I was like, oh, this is everywhere. So that's when I read it, I was probably 16 the first time. And I I just I think the collected works, there was a Duray version that came yeah. out. And so I read, I just Blew through them. It was so good. Uh, I think at the time I hadn't really been into fantasy, um, but that that reignited that reading of, of fiction. Yeah. I was reading a lot of nonfiction, um, so I mean it was, it was that was just my gateway back into into reading Michael mm. Moorcock and, mm. and Eric. And honestly, I, I'm more of a sci-fi guy, 100. But 
I struggle to find fantasy as with as interesting and engaging worlds as what Errol, uh Morcock has done. Like mm. I, I just, it's so good, and it's yeah. hard to find fantasy specifically that does. I, th- I find that sci-fi, I get more of the satisfaction out of the, the those like messy characters. Sure. Well, of course, a, a lot of your other music, just going through your uh, your catalogue, Ricardo mm. and, and Maria. There's a few other authors as well that you're either in, adapting or inspired by. Um, yeah. Alice, a lot of Alistair Reynolds recently. Yeah, that guy's work is, is awesome. Yeah, um, I think it's, it's Absolution Gap or Revelation Space I've got on my shelf and Pushing Ice I've had on my shelf for yeah, years yeah. and I've yeah. never got around to reading them. Oh, and I, 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 think, I think what stopped me was I, I picked them up from a, of all places, a garden centre. <laughs> as you do with, with uh, books, you find them in the weirdest places, don't you? And I picked up three or four Alistair Reynolds books and three or four Peter F. Hamilton books. And um, I think it was, uh, I can't remember the name of the, the Peter F. Hamilton book, but I tried reading it and I got about halfway through it, which must have been about 800 pages and realised that I couldn't remember a thing about it and put it down. <laughs> and I think it was totally demoralised. And, um, and the Alistair Reynolds books have been sitting there waiting for me to have a go. So I yeah, really, he's, really he's must... He's a little more engaging. <laughs> yeah, I really must, I really must dig into them. Um, but also some Dan Simmons, some Frank Herbert, um Mm. in there as well and also brandon sanderson yeah now brandon sanderson keeps on coming up when i have conversations related to this podcast and he's completely passed me by oh yeah i've I've never read any brandon sanderson i never see them in bookshops even i spend half my life pursuing secondhand books really seen them in a secondhand bookshop so to someone who likes science fiction and and fantasy what what's the deal with brandon sanderson uh, his, but for me, the thing that sells it for me is the, the, I, I post about this, it's a, uh, but his magic systems that he creates. So, I mean, like the stones on this guy, he, he's so ambitious. He, he has this, this universe called the Cosmere. And so far each published world is taking place on a different planet. And these stories, um, like each world has multiple books within that world and are telling a story but they are at some point in time his goal is for everything to come together yeah so there's this one character named hoyd who's a world hopper who shows up as it's like sometimes he's hidden in the books so like part of the fun of reading them is finding which guy is hoyd so he's right. this this character weaving all these stories together somehow like i still have no idea and it's it's the books are there's many books and they're ongoing and like time is passing in them. And I think I had to remember hearing that at some point, like his goal is for the technologies in these worlds, in these worlds to advance to the point where they like reach some sort of space travel and then they'll meet mm. or something crazy like that. Like it's, it, it's the ambition is, is overwhelming, but his, his magic systems are what's engaging. It's, it's what makes each world unique and, and they're cool, they're fun. and. Some of the books are a little more YA skewed. Some are more high fantasy skewed. So you get a little variety in in that sense. But it's it's great writing. He he um, is the one who went on to finish the Wheel of Time. Right. Uh, okay. Yeah. So that's like how his name got out there. And then during that is when he started this Cosmere journey. It's a lot mm. of books, but. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm always ever so slightly into. I mean, ironically, because this is a Mocock podcast, and, and mm. you know, once you discover Mocock, you fly down a rabbit hole and end up having yeah. to to pursue it like Pokemon, and <clears throat> you know, pursue all the connections and all the different. I mean, at the moment, I, 
I've got a terrible habit of picking up books several times just because of different editions and different covers from different eras. And yeah. you know, most of the Mocock books I got were the Mayflower editions in the seventies, which I got from uh, got from my granddad, which had the really wild psychedelic covers. But I'm, I'm always a little bit intimidated now at, my, at the edge I'm at now of actually uh, picking up a, a series of books that seem to you know demand uh, a certain amount of commitment. <laughs> yeah, well, the, the the good thing about the the Cosmere universe is that because like at, for now they're all separate stories you there's, there's no, you don't have to read all of them like mm. just there's a couple one-offs a couple of the planets only have one book in the novel okay. some of them uh, only have three books you know, so you don't have to like bite into a, a 15 book thing just yeah. if you read read one of the one-offs and if you're like oh that's cool then read the other one off and like last one's a lot more appealing um yeah, I, and I, it, remember, it, I remember larry niven being like that mm-hmm. I read a number of known space stories, and I, I, I was aware that they were all kind of in a, a shared setting. But I remember making the connection between a novel called Protector and Ringworld, which I wasn't expecting, and it yeah. was a real fantastic revelation. But you didn't need to have to have read yeah. them both. Whereas something like The Wheel of Time, a friend of mine, Gemma, um, has a friend who's been who, who, who spent an afternoon in a park. We were spent an afternoon in a park drinking called the, the Dragon Boat Festival in Saltaire, of all things entertaining afternoon in the sunshine and a few <laughs> drinks but she tried to sell us on the wheel of time stories um and i think i picked up the first couple and there's a bit of peter f hamilton going on with the wheel of time books as yeah. well you look at them they're a massive chunk i think i read a quarter of it couldn't remember anything about it and gave up you know good on brandon sanderson for taking that on <laughs> yeah I, it's i only started the wheel of time because i wanted to get to the books that he's written but i'm having such a hard time getting through it i i don't think it's good like, it's so crushingly boring it's like, like, <laughs> i think the first three books were engaging enough yeah and uh, i wanted to rip my eyes out by book six right and i couldn't even finish it i, I had to like get the audio book because i couldn't make myself read it so yeah. like i finished that then i bought book seven and i was like all right fresh start and the like, mm. same thing is happening i can't <laughs> mm. you gotta you gotta stop i'm just wasting my own time because yeah my own experience of robert jordan is i read couple of his conan novels mm-hmm. um and yeah they work for me yeah they work for me uh, I, I i don't know how it's possible to make conan really really boring and pedestrian <laughs> um, and i'm sure he's a lovely fella i don't want to be overly critical i'm sure he's yeah. written some great stuff but but if, if you write conan i would rather read terrible shitty pastiche conan than yeah. someone who makes conan really really dull <laughs> you know even the robert jordan conan covers were dull I've got I've got a couple of the hardcover collections on the show. Anyway, enough Robert Jordan knocking. Yeah, yeah. So obviously you're you're a big fan of of genre fiction. Just how how important is genre fiction to you, like more generally? I think I like being um like which is why I like sci-fi. I like being like floored and confused by what I'm reading and mm. forcing my especially because it's reading forcing my brain to create the image that's like these ludicrous situations yeah like like does it work for your brain while you're reading it and then like you stop and like you reflect on like what picturing what was just described to you was insane and that's the fun of it for me and i I like that it's like it's just i mean it's escapism you know it's whatever else is going on in your world you pick up a pick up a book and just go to another world and Mm. travel to a different place that's kind of like what i'm doing with with emir like i want to i want to visit all these different worlds these realities all these like throughout books and everything and that's also sort of how like why i came to the name imrir and being the dreaming city because it's just like it's all these you know dream worlds that exist mm-hmm. like visiting these places like the 
the stuck up Melnabonian is just wasting their time traveling their dreams and stuff yeah. like that's that's what I want to do too yeah. I, I get it <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. if, I, if I could so that's what I'm doing with my music and just want to go on journeys and tell tales and tell other people's tales like I'm not writing them but ex, you know expose these cool universes yeah. that exist yeah I, I think that's why that, that kind of fiction casts such a long reach across music doesn't it particularly rock music and because yeah. that's that's a little bit bare-chested blokes with swords fits quite nicely on heavy metal <laughs> albums and everything else but it, it casts such a long reach across music and it's influenced so many people um I, I do remember many many years ago kind of pursuing that not necessarily just mocock but kind of getting into the, the 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 fantasy mighty feud and science fiction progressive and space rock kind of elements of yeah. of rock music you know recoiling a little bit at, at the manor war end yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> although you know some of the videos are quite funny but there's yeah. there's, there's so much of it and, and one of the things i found um looking at Bandcamp the Mocock influence, not just the Mocock influence, but the Mocock influence really kind of spreads far and wide now. You know, at one point, it, it, there was a lot of it in heavy metal and heavy metal album covers and even heavy metal names like Tigers of Pantang. But the work that you're doing and the, and the dungeon synth that Elric was doing, and, and there's there's some really interesting um, bands out there. Um, one called Hawk Moon Moor, which is a strange, I think they're Ukrainian kind of mashup of noise doom metal you, you posted about that right yeah yeah, yeah. I, I checked them out there it was really good that one yeah there's, there's yeah, some yeah. absolutely fascinating stuff out there but outside of things like Markok, where else are your influences coming from uh like musically yeah i think as as i was writing the the first album uh i really wanted to uh, focus like i guess my goal was to kind of like use um repetition uh, in the way that someone like Steve Reich or, or Philip Glass or mm. what I think is used in the same way, a band like Dark Throne, who's, who's an old you know black metal band, but there, there's there's a sort of hip, hypnotic way to use repetition that that uh, I'm drawn to, and and like I'm trying to explore how to do that properly. Mm. So I wanted to take like the repetition of of Philip Glass and dark throne and i wanted i just i wanted the music to be sad like crushingly sad which mm. uh, pulling from that i wanted to sound like um virgin black and my dying bride are two of my shape of despair it's probably the third uh just sad doom metal mm. um so it's slow i mean you, i do a lot of i've been doing more like sort of doom influences uh doom metal influences in my music lately repetition incredibly sad and then just that uh, electronica comes from a uh, star of ash is, is a, one of my favorite bands and then you know i don't know if you're familiar with the band oliver no um but they're they're a band that you know started in one genre and have, have just changed like you can pick five albums by them and they'll sound very different they started as a black middle band and are now sort of like synth poppy Right. dark synth pop but in between they've been droned they've been like glitched they've they've done interesting things um so i wanted to take take all that and I, I wanted to make something that i would want to listen to that would pique my interest in. and and the top layer of it all uh i wanted to have more like a tim hecker kg hino I don't think I do a good job of emulating either of those guys, but I really love what they do. That's sort of more atmospheric, droney, 
sounds. Yeah. So it's, it's a, a big mashup, and and I don't I don't think I stick to one influence of all of them. I, I try and just see what comes together. And yeah. Sometimes it works. Sometimes it only sound like one. Sometimes like the other. And I just I, I try not to like hold myself to that either because then that's boring. Then I'm trying mm. to sound like something. And but that was like the, the ultimate goal. So, mm. I mean, it was a mess. It was a lot of things. So that's why I had, I had a I was struggling with what to call how to describe it. And I just Blake electronic and experimental seemed like the closest I could get. Yeah. So for the last 18 months, what, what's the journey been like? And how do you think you've developed in, in, in terms of your, your own development and working with this kind of music? I, I'm definitely getting better at, at, at um, mixing. Mm. <laughs> and then, you know, all the, the technical aspects. I think that's yeah. the, the, been the biggest learning curve for, for me. Yeah. Uh, were you completely when you first you said you first got that like MIDI keyboard yeah. or, or piece of equipment? When you first got that, how did you approach it? Was was it a brand new instrument for you? Was it a brand new way of making music? You said uh, yeah, you were a bass player in, in bands. So, yeah, I've how, never did, played how do you go about or... your your? What was your process like? I mean, obviously, there's <laughs> there's a creative element involved when you're a musician where you get some form of inspiration. But sure. how, do, how do you go from not to sixty? So the the first album and the first two albums I at least would write something on guitar, like a, oh. a, a passage or whatever. And then I'd, then I'd have to sit there like, and then transfer that into the, like, onto the keyboard, which I wouldn't even do because I can't play keyboard, but I'd like punch in the notes on, on mm. the mid, in the MIDI. Um, I, I've gotten away from that. I, I'm, I can now, I mean, I'll just take the keyboard and just make stuff up. Like, I, yeah. I don't know what I'm doing at the beginning. Like, I'll find a sound I like and I'll sit there and I'll play until I do something that like sounds decent and then then that becomes the the basis it's it's a lot of improvisation just, yeah. and then i improvise until i find something i like and then i write off of that i, I, I really i'm not a musician but mm -hmm. i do really admire musicians and i think i my attention span is too short and, mm -hmm. and and I, I lack uh, application <laughs> which is why i've i've never learned a musical instrument but it's it's funny you mentioned the the, the midi thing my old buddy Wayne, who I haven't actually seen in person for 28 years, um, is is doing some music and scoring the journal at the end of the podcast that I've been popping at the end of the podcasts. And a while back, maybe about three or four months ago, I decided to go on eBay and, and maybe just get an old MIDI keyboard or something like that and just and just have a play around because I think I'd, I'd got um, Ableton Live Lite or something like that. And I was I was having a muck about and and this is this, this is why I never get anywhere because. I was on eBay and, and I thought, what shall I put in as a search field? So I just put MIDI and a few keyboards came up. But the fourth thing that came up was something called George the MIDI Accompanist. <laughs> and I thought, what the fuck is George the MIDI Accompanist? So I looked at it and I, I ended up, long story short, I ended up buying it for 28 quid. And George the MIDI Accompanist was a, a, a bespoke unit made in the 1990s by the Royal Naval Engineering College. Pastors and padres in service could perform services aboard warships where they didn't have an organist, and it's uh, it, it's in a um, uh, like a, a bomb-proof case, and it's it's a bespoke metal thing that's been built into this case with knobs and dials, yeah. and uh, a couple of speakers wired into it, and an old Yamaha tone bank, basically screwed to it and attached to it as as, as the MIDI output, which goes to the speakers. And there's a lot of paperwork with it, and there's these four cartridges which are bespoke physical media using what seems to be some kind of old serial port 
and on each one there's 200 MIDI hymns. So this is why I never get to actually try my hand at making it, music because was it fully aberrational? You can like yeah, I plugged it in <laughs> awesome. and it works. Some of them sound like the MIDI organist is completely drunk, <laughs> <laughs> and some of them actually don't sound, you know, for for, for MIDI tunes, they don't yeah. sound too bad. Um, so so I was having to play around with that and. So actually, where I should have been applying myself to actually trying to buy something useful and interesting, what I bought was some weird piece of Royal Naval Engineering history. <laughs> but, you know, I kind of got off on a slight tangent here. But the, um, the the paperwork that comes with it still has the handwritten notes of the pastors aboard the ships that use certain tunes that say things like, don't, don't use this one, it's rubbish. And it's, it's absolutely bizarre because you plug these little things in, which are about the size of... Um, maybe half the size, half the length of an old cassette, but twice the thickness. And you plug it in, then you select the track you want by, it looks like an old-fashioned tape counter, you know, with the wheels and the numbers yeah. on it. And you push buttons to switch the numbers and then press play. It's, it's baffling. It's, it's, it's really weird, but it's such a kind of interesting thing to have. So, yeah, I will never learn to play music <laughs> because I'm always buying stupid shit like that. But, yeah, that's a cool one. Though. Yeah, at, at some point I'll have to put a demonstration on YouTube or something. Yeah, like yeah. Um, so what are you working on now? What's next? Uh, I'm doing uh, some Philip K. Dick. Oh, nice. That, yeah. If I had the time. Um, to do multiple podcasts, I would definitely do a Philip K. Dick podcast as well. Yeah, I'd, I'd like I'd like that. to do a little some more exploring into classic, more classic yeah. uh, fantasy and and sci-fi. So yeah, I, I've done uh, Robert Heinlein. I did not uh, one of his short stories. Yeah, to now I want to do a one of my favorite. I love Philip K. Dick. So yeah, it's overdue visiting his uh, his brain. You know. <laughs> Yeah, uh, there's there's an interesting connection between Philip K. Dick and Moorcock as well. Funnily enough, in the UK, it was Moorcock who largely got publishers to put to, to publish Philip K. Dick material in the sixties. Uh, he, he, he was a, a real kind of proponent of um, of uh, I don't know. I suppose it seems weird to describe Philip K. Dick as a young author, but you know, back back in the sixties, Moorcock was pushing all these all these kind of younger authors and interesting authors, and 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 had quite a lot of swing with publishers. So around about the time I was discovering Moorcock as well, I was reading a lot of Philip K. Dick, and to this day, I still probably put Ubik down as one, one of my favourite novels oh, of yeah. all time. It's absolutely wonderful. That's incredible, that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So one of the most striking things about your work when I found it on Bandcamp was the artwork and that whole aesthetic, which I absolutely love. Is that all your work too? Yeah, uh, I do all the art, um, and I go out of my way to keep it album to album very similar. Very, yeah, it's a fantastic uh, it's, look, and it's really, really unique. I've not seen anything else quite like it. Thanks. The uh, the like main push that I keep is I have a when I did the art for the first album, it was just a pen sketch, and I just scribbled. Um, but I really love when a book has been shitting, sitting, shitting, sitting on a shelf for years. The uh, <laughs> the that yellowing that the paper gets. Yeah. And so that that I took a picture of just an old piece of paper, and that's what I use as the background for every right, album okay. art. And yeah. I just I zoom in on it and stretch it to get like different textures out of it. And that's that's why they all look that color is just a yellow piece of paper. Yeah. So, so, so my... what's what's behind all the um? There's like sigils almost on some of them, like the the, the symbology. It's specific to whatever the book or whatever universe my, the story is in. Well, I really dig it, and I've, I noticed on Bandcamp you also do um, like physical media. Uh, yeah, I have the as first well with with a little box and and um... yeah, the first five albums I have uh, on CD, and I made 
little prints for the of the artwork. Yeah. I have I have front and back art for every album. You can't really ever see the back artwork, you know, because sure. in the digital world. Um, this is one of the sad parts about it all, isn't it? And absolutely. I've got to say, Bandcamp is costing me a fortune in buying <laughs> vinyl. <laughs> I'm, yeah. I'm back on buying vinyl because so many people are doing like limited edition vinyl releases, and weirdly, I'm also and I, I've not got nowhere to play them. <laughs> I'm buying cassettes. Cassettes, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So I've got this uh, Immortal Sword Volume One, UK Dungeons in Underground. <laughs> And it's fantastic, and and I couldn't resist buying the cassette. And there's um there's a a, a bandcamp label called oh, it's Bristol Burst. I, f- I forgot the name, but um all the proceeds go to Bristol homeless charities, and they always do a, a unique nice. cassette with handmade labels. Each one's unique, hand, awesome. handmade inlays, <clears throat> and it's fantastic. But it's getting to the point now where I was on eBay the other day looking at um vintage. Um, hi-fi separate cassette players and I had to give my head a tap because I've got like six cassettes you know why, why do I need to drop 80 quid on an old Technics cassette deck or something you'll get more though once you started you know yeah, it's, yeah, it's an investment yeah. yeah probably well on YouTube the other day I did actually see somebody doing a review of an old hi-fi separate which was nothing but um, like an oscillator visualizer for the music mm-hmm. with a green dis- oscillator display and I ended up just down a, an auction site rabbit hole for about two hours, and I couldn't find one, a reconditioned one, for less than about 900 quid. So, right, okay, okay, let's just stop. Now, before we go down a hi-fi rabbit hole, I've just got to say I think it's only fair that we give your your moggy, your cat, uh, a shout-out. Because, <laughs> yeah, sure. uh, because your cat's been getting involved as well. Yeah, it's, uh, that's Hilo. He's from... Uh... Named after my favorite character from Battlestar Galactica. So. <laughs> Is that Battlestar Galactica original or Battlestar Galactica reboot? The, the reboot. Right. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm not sufficiently au fait with the original Battlestar Galactica. I did watch the reboot and I did enjoy it. But it's such a long time since I've seen the Glen Air Larson one. I can't remember if there was a hero in the original. Yeah, I'm not sure. I, I have watched it and... Uh... It's that, I mean, it, it's enjoyable for what it is, but I don't ever need to go back to it. <laughs> yeah, it's very much of its time, yeah. isn't it? You've got a question for me. Yeah, I wanted to, to pick your brain. Uh, my experience of, of Eric, and I've read through the collections I have. I know it's a podcast, but I've, oh, this yeah. version, yep. um, it's presented in the publication chronology, which is yes. not chronological. Yep. So that's, that's I love that. Like, yep. I love that complicated twist to figuring the story out. But is it? And I've reread it in this way. Is it worth reading chronologically? Like, does it change the the experience well, for you? Have you read it both ways? Yeah. Now, and I'll, I'll have to scratch my brain and think back. So, originally, the first Elric book I ever read, which was one of the two first Mocock books I was ever given by Pops, was Stormbringer. He gave me the um the ace pocketbook editions from the late 60s of stormbringer i think it was maybe the turn of the 70s the warlord of the air so the the first printings in the ace pocketbook edition so i read stormbringer before i read anything else but but that version of stormbringer was abridged so when stormbringer was released in the 70s in the uk in the panther or grafton editions and in the states in the door editions when they were put into chronological order for the first time with Elric of Melanibonair, Sailor on the Seas of Fate, Weird of the White Wolf, etc. By the time it got to Stormbringer, it was expanded with additional material. And this is a habit that Mocock got into more and more over the years, as I think we touched upon previously. So I read them all in in a, a bizarre order. I read Stormbringer first, and then over the years, 
I think the first one I ever bought myself with my own money was The Weird of the White Wolf. And I bought it from the whole university bookshop. I wasn't at the university by then, I was too young, but my mum worked there, so I, was, I popped into the university bookshop. Have I ever read them in chronological order? Now, in the UK, they released the Millennium Editions in the 90s, which were big, handsome editions with a lot of Robert Gould covers. Um, really, really lovely. And once again, it, it mildly revised them. But when I got them, I th from memory, I think I may have, but I can't actually say that I definitely did. But when I got together with Phil and I encouraged her to read Mocock, she read the Millennium Editions. So at this point, there was no Moonbeam Roads trilogy. <coughs> Yeah. Um, so she read the Millennium Editions and she read them in, in, in narrative order. But I, I honestly can't say whether I did or not. One thing I would say about kind of embarking on the reread for the podcast, it'll probably take us forever to get through all the Elric books at the, the, the pace we're actually going, it'll be 2037 <laughs> or something. But I think the change in... Um, there's quite a significant change in the pace and tone just from... Elric of Melnivenay to, for example, The Dreaming City, the short yeah. story, which is in the first published short story, which is in Weird of the White Wolf. It becomes much more considered. I mean, Elric of Melnivenay is still a rollicking read. You can still rattle through it at pace, but even Elric of Melnivenay makes The Dreaming City seem like, you know, uh, almost a, a hundred mile an hour penny dreadful. Yeah, you know, yeah. it's it's still fantastic. It's still full of the incredible imagery, but it's breakneck pace. There are other authors out there who would have taken the Dream and City and could have turned it into a four hundred page book. Mm -hmm. And when Loz and I reread it, we were kind of surprised that it was only thirty odd pages because in our minds it was so much more. Yeah, there's so, so much bigger. story being told. Yeah, there's, yeah. there's so much going on there. And then when you start to introduce things like Fortress of the Pearl and Revenge of the Rose. Well, Fortress of the Pearl will become, I think, uh, is is that now the second in narrative order? I'm questioning myself now. It's either uh, the second or third. So you would read Elric of Melnibane, then Fortress of the Pearl, then Sailor on the Seas of Fate, then Weird of the White Wolf, when you come back to the Dreaming City. And that I would find that, just thinking about it, is jarring. Yeah, yeah it's jarring, yeah. Yeah, incredibly jarring. Because out of all of them, until the Moonbeam Road trilogy started coming out, White Wolf's Son, Scrailing Tree, which I think has been renamed now, no, sorry, Dream Thief's Daughter, White Wolf's... Uh, God. Dream Thief's Daughter, Scrailing Tree, White Wolf's Son. I think The Fortress of the Pearl was the hardest read um, of all the Elric books. I found it quite heavy heavy mm -hmm. going when I read yeah. it, probably in the late 80s. So we're kind of going through that period now. And my personal choice, my personal... Occasionally someone will pop up on Twitter and say, which Moorcock... I, I want to get into Moorcock, what should I read? And my attitude is always, the first one you find in a second-hand bookshop. <laughs> Because because that's the that's the true way. That's that's the journey, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Is so I I would love to. I I read comics as well, and I've never like anytime I always look for collections of the graphic novel. Yeah. Of Elric, is there one totally to avoid? Like, cause I, I have no. Are they all good? Is there a crap one? Is there a, is there? A... I, I think there is. It's very much about tests. Um, sure. The I, I quite like the Roy Thomas adaptations from oh, the seventies. And um, and fortunately, the Titan Comics are doing reprints of these in beautiful hardcovers at the moment. So I, I you, think I, last time I checked, I saw those coming up. Yeah, you saw the, the <clears throat> Elric ones, Corum and Hawkmoon. Also, um, the Swords of Heaven, the Flowers of Hell, which was like a fourth Erikos story, which he did with Howard Chaykin artwork, 
which is the store is not brilliant it's pretty short but the, the artwork is absolutely beautiful the howard chicken artwork is gorgeous I, I quite like the roy thomas adaptations i think the artwork is uh, a little bit marmite for some people i don't even know does a new yorker know what marmite means <laughs> the spread that you put on <laughs> yeah so <laughs> you either love it or hate it yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. and I know that I've, I've not read it myself, but Hellboy, Mike Mignola has done mm-hmm. a, a Corum adaptation, which a lot of people speak very, very highly of. I still haven't got my hands on it. I quite like the P. Craig Russell art from back in the day. If I just, sorry, if I just bend down for a second. Sure. I do have very old collections down here. Of, I've got Sailor on the Seas of Fate here. That's true. Yeah, which is, um, I, th- I think some of the artwork's great. Some of it slightly more questionable. I'm not, for example, mad keen on his, his take on Yakun. But, you know, for the most part, it's it's okay. But I, I do like comics. I'm a comics fan. But, that said, I'm not a massive fan of Mocock adaptations. Okay, yeah. <clears throat> Mocock himself did the Mocock's Multiverse comic, which he did some stuff with Walt Simonson. Again, beautiful artwork, some John Ridgway artwork. Really, really nice stuff. But, I don't know, I, I think... Because Mocock conjures up such vivid imagery, nobody ever captures it as well yeah. as your imagination. And yeah. I think you can get away with that with Conan, you know? When it's just strapping warriors, hacking yeah. each other to bits, or massive battlefields. There's been some really fantastic Conan adaptations. Um, I liked the Carrie Nord run on by Dark Horse. I really liked all the Thomas Giarello artwork, and I think, I think that's fine. I think it works for Conan. But for something as vivid and psychedelic as... Mocock work. I I don't really think any of the artwork has done it justice. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Probably the one exception artwork wise is I mean, you know, of course I like Frank Frank Brunner paintings are always beautiful. The uh there's a French adaptation of the Elric novels which is um just about to have its third volume released as a collection. Volume one's called The Ruby Throne. It's adapted by Julie Blondell and Didier Polly. And I've gotta say, the artwork is absolutely glorious. It's full painted artwork, it's absolutely phenomenal. But I'm not actually that big a fan of the adaptation because okay. they take they take quite a lot of liberties with the story and and I think one of the key things about Elric when he's sitting on the ruby throne and he's completely fed up of Yakun, he kind of has a, a, a real active distaste for a lot of the Melnibonean debauchery and, and habits. They take a lot of that away from him and he, he's less less emo and less objectionable. Yeah. <laughs> and he's, he's more of a true Melnibonean. <laughs> in these adaptations. Right, and the entire reason kind of they all that's supposed to yeah, motivate the him more, right? <laughs> Yeah, the entire reason they all disliked him and the Akun hated him is because he wasn't Melnibonean. Right. He disapproved yeah. of all these things and he only engaged them in them massively reluctantly. So whilst I, I, I kind of appreciate that they've done something with it, and actually Mocock himself has said something along the lines of, had he written them again with what he knows now, he may well have heaved closer to Julie Blondell's take on the character. Whether that's just him being very, very generous mm-hmm. or not, I don't know. That was one of the things that really drew me to the like the darker side of this still being a fantasy because yeah. a lot of times even now when I when I try newer fantasy stories, there's just there's like a heroism and joy. Yeah. at the core of the story that yeah. like i don't it's not necessarily what i'm looking for <laughs> like yeah. i like that bleak dark <laughs> darkness that that comes out of eric and he's still a hero but he's kind of a shit guy you know <laughs> and yeah. it's just like this surrounded by sort of shit people <laughs> and yeah absolutely that's what, that's what makes it great and that's what i think i would like to write more albums based on fantasy mm. books but mm. i don't want them to be 
look at this brave soul saving the world. I wanted to be, you know, I got to find more fantasy that has that. That's that's a really interesting point, though, isn't it? M- yeah. Moorcock's reach goes all the way across all different media. But for some reason, music generally tends to be about Elric. Mm-hmm. Elric is the one that's inspired all of these artists. Now, is it because we all identify with Elric when we're a teenager because he's a doomed hero, but he's also a bit of a Burke, so <laughs> he's actually quite identifiable. Sure. <laughs> whereas um, whereas Ericos is essentially uh, like a Nazi Uberman who's right. just uh, you know wiping out entire civilizations for one reason or another. Corum is uh, an articulate urban kind of unreachable ideal of yeah, a hero I'm, I'm still working my way through the quorum books but yeah. it's, it's not the same appeal for yeah the quorum yeah. books i think are, are great because they're weird psych they're psychedelic travelogues yeah <laughs> as much as anything and and hawk moon is like uh, the classic ptsd wounded war veteran who's yeah. got his head down and he's just plowing through everything for for the, for the love of a woman more than anything else and there's you know so elric is by far the most identifiable character for people with a bit sure. of a, a creative I, ilk i remember when i when i read this book you know i was probably 16 or 17 and it i mean it, it ends with the end of the world and yeah. it ends with like you know what is it stormbringer becomes a personification and is like laughing over his corpse thing. that's right yeah. <laughs> and it's like yeah i was like oh my god and then after this, there's all these other books that fill in all the gaps. I was like so excited. It was like, oh, this world, this is great. I can't wait to. Like, yeah, you know. I can still remember reading that when I was 13 or 14, and the end was like, oh. Yeah. <laughs> it was it's, like, what? It's absolutely incredible. So going back to your, your first question, there's lots and lots of adaptations out there. Uh, probably my favourite was a, an unofficial adaptation of Jerry Cornelius called Saga of the Man Elf that's quite hard to find now, but occasionally they do pop up on eBay. It was a six-part series, five or six-part series, and Moorcock actually gave it his blessing and allowed them to use his characters because huh. he's, he's always been yeah. very, very generous like that, especially with the, the Jerry Cornelius, um, yeah. I don't know, what do you call it, mythos, canon, whatever we would call it. So they're probably my personal favourites, even though the art is maybe a little bit a little bit touch and go. Beautiful covers, really nice full-painted covers. Um, but the, the Elric adaptations, eh, you know, they're okay. Yeah. Do you do you live in fear of, of someone committing a film adaptation of? Well, yeah, we've touched on this a couple of times, and yeah, I know, yeah, yeah. I, I think uh, that there's there is a certain feeling of dread attached yeah, I mean, you, I, to I all of that. I don't want it to happen. I know it's. <laughs> Been, been disappointed so many times with yeah. so many adaptations. I think I think last time I picked on the BBC War of the Worlds adaptation, and it's them that have got the history of the Rune stuff um, in the pipeline. So I won't pick on that again. I think I've I've said what I need to say about that. But I don't know. Let's think Robert E. Howard, for example. Um, whilst I'm a big fan of the John Melius film for what it is, it's not a good Conan film. Sure. Yeah. Whilst I kind of enjoyed the Solomon Kane film. For what it is. It's not a yeah. good Solomon Kane film. The Conan the Barbarian remake with Jason Momoa. I thought Momoa made a great Conan. I thought it was excellent. Yeah. Um, he, he's got um, charisma to burn. Even that early in his, his career, you could see that he's got charisma to burn. You could see that he was going to be a star. But the rest of it uh, just really didn't work for me. One thing I did, actually, one thing I did really like about that was if a film is going to give someone an origin story that in the books doesn't have an origin story, other than the most vague 
background, yeah. do something interesting with it. So one thing I did quite like about the Conan the Barbarian remake was him going on the race with the egg in his mouth. Yeah, that was a good scene. I thought that was an absolutely fantastic scene, and it was brutal, and it was violent, and it, and it worked really well. Now, I love Ron Perlman, and I love watching Ron Perlman yeah. in things, but the moment I saw Ron Perlman and his dad, it just completely took me out of the movie. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and uh, it was more like a Robert Jordan <laughs> take yeah, on yeah. Conan, that. The fact that, you know, the, you've got his dad in it, and he's... Uh, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, one of the interesting things about adaptations is they always feel a need to do backstories, don't they? Well, Elric's got the perfect backstory, hasn't he? Yeah. But yeah. they would still fuck it up. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, are, are, are they going to have the choir of slaves all with their throats operated on and with their vocal cords exposed, all all, all operated <laughs> on to sing a, a, a single note in excruciating pain? Will, will they have all of those weird details? I don't know. Probably not, because everything's about money and appeal, isn't it? Yeah. And yeah. and one thing about that, that you know about Moorcock, and you know about Elric in particular, is it's massively influential. It's shot through everything, whether it's George R.R. R. Martin or anything else, or The Witcher. It's, it's DNA is in fantasy right across the board, just as yeah. much as, as Tolkien. But if you talk to a young kid these days who's 25, who's a massive fantasy fan, 95 out of 100 of them don't know who Michael Moorcock is. And that's because whilst the appeal was there for for a hardcore readership, um, and for quite a lot of people in the 60s and 70s when these things were really, really popular, his his appeal or the appeal of his kind of work, psychedelic, violent, subversive, transgressive, (laughs) it's not there for a $100 million movie. No. I think that's that's the sad part of it. Yeah, it's better, better left in our heads. I yeah, anyway, no. the same way as the comics. Yeah, the, the battle at the end of Stormbringer. How do you do that on film without <laughs> no. a two hundred million dollar budget? Yeah, yeah. So interestingly, one one of the um, Golanx collections, which have recently been released in the UK, and I think there might have been White Wolf collections in the US, which have had some other similar stuff in. There's actually a Stormbringer screenplay that was obviously never filmed, and I've had a read through it, and actually it's interesting enough it's you know got airships and all sorts nothing that's nothing to do with stormbringer the book it's sure. it's it's more of a kind of a mashup of the, the you know the, the stormbringer sword with a little bit of eric curse a little bit of john day it's, it's I quite I an interesting take a, a safer way to to approach it yeah um, yeah it's quite no, an interesting take the way uh blade runner is an adaptation of doing android's dream of electric sheep and mm. Blade Runner is a very good movie. Yeah. And Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep is a very good book. They borrowed enough and they also didn't call it the same thing, which was good. But mm. it's they're two completely separate like things. One inspired by the other, but it's not an adaptation because I don't know. It, it it's safer that way than if they would have called it Do Android Dreams of Electric Sheep and then it had been this completely off adaptation. And you'd be like, Well, this isn't the same thing. Like yeah. this, <laughs> you've changed far too much and it's Focusing on totally different aspects of the story. I, just, yeah. I think more of those loose inspirations by a really good book, you're probably safer because then you're not going to necessarily, you're, everyone's always going to be disappointed, but you're less likely to like offend the fans who are like, let the original source be the beautiful story you have in your head and then write a movie inspired by. I think that's safer. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> I, I, think you're, I think you're absolutely spot on. I think there's possibly two ways it could work. One is that it was animated. Oh, 100%. Um, or you got some absolutely wild talent like Tarsim Singh to do it with mm-hmm. with a decent oh, budget. <laughs> but but I'm, I'm not sure whether, whether that would ever come off. Uh, but, yeah, the other idea is that you do something which has all of the themes. 
that it has the black sword it has um the john dacre stuff it has the eternal champion mythos mm-hmm. in there you know the, the like the the, the canon in, and it and it does something interesting with it with that it, has yeah. that has you know hopefully has Mocock's um seal of approval because Mocock, i think is more than happy for people to use his material with his blessing if he feels like you know he's involved just like he did with jerry cornelius with m john harrison and brian aldis and all those other yeah. authors just like he did with saga of the man elf you know comic by some unknown people who he gave his blessing to and you know i, th- I think if he gave his blessing to something like that it would be it would be fabulous you know, but I, I don't think we'll ever get an, a faithful adaptation, um, and I don't think yeah. we should. Yeah, because I, I, think it, I think it would be a massive, massive clusterfuck if they did. Yeah, you know, I, I think the first time we actually heard of somebody having the rights to it was after was it after Lord of the, the first Lord of the Rings movie came out, and all of a sudden the studios realised that there was huge money in sword films. I think so because as long as I've been into into the book, like I'm, I'm 35, so it's been you know maybe 16 is when I started. So yeah, I, I've always heard that it's in the works. You know, yeah, like, but, but 20, was, 20 years or whatever. Yeah, it was announced. I, th- I think originally the guys who had the rights to it were the American Pie people. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. Thinking back, I'm, I'm sure it was them. Um, Chris Weitz. I can't remember, but it was the American Pie people had the rights, and and it just languished in development hell. And then on and on and on. And a couple of years ago, there was an announcement made that it was maybe going to go to series, but it's it's not been picked up. But yeah. Mocock's latest um, information, which I understand somebody reported on that it, it posted on Facebook, is that there is a, a script for History of the Rune Staff, which is being done by the BBC and uh, one yeah. of the production companies that they work with, and and he really approves of it. Says it's a really strong screenplay. So maybe. I think I'd probably feel slightly not exactly confident or, or optimistic, but I'd, I feel like something like History of the Room stuff is probably more doable. Um, yeah. But who knows? E- even then, are, are they going to go to the extremes that, that are in just the first half of, of The Jewel in the Skull? Because it's, it's pretty wild. Yeah. It's pretty out there, you know. Um, children and women and families crucified along the roads to um, European capitals by the evil British Grand Britannian Empire. Of uh, you know, so I suppose it, it it does raise some interesting questions about the way Britain's going at the moment and whether it's yeah. quite timely to have something like that. Um, I think it probably is. But wh- whether whether the BBC can carry that off and and, right. and and be faithful to just how deeply kind of mean it all is, and I don't mean mean from the perspective of Moorcock being kind of just writing mean things because you do yeah. get authors who are just a little bit mean spirited don't you um, sure, sure. in the stuff that they write but Mocock writes things with a rationale and when his villains are villainous by Jove they are seriously <laughs> villainous <laughs> and that's one yeah, thing are. that you've got in there yeah 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 so yeah it's the, the whole discussion about adaptations is is a really really interesting one and you know in another universe or in a parallel dimension or 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 an earth 14 there is a michael mocock cinematic universe that's been running for the last 12 years right and has made absolutely shitloads of dough <laughs> and uh, and keeps on rolling but yeah i don't think we'll ever see it i think it's i think it's it's too out there it's too outre for for mainstream and maybe that's the way it should stay. Right. Oh, uh, so just to praise a really good adaptation from book to film. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with The Expanse. It's a oh, good sci-fi yeah, yeah. series. And that Love TV show is a fantastic interpretation of those books. And, and of that, course, uh, the, the two guys who have the pen name, James Corey, yes, yeah. they're, they're up to the necks in that production, aren't they? Yes, so, they are. And so that's even, why it works. <laughs> yeah, so so even though they've they've you know they've they've made certain adjustments or they've made some characters into like um they've amalgamated some people into like combined characters, still works. 
still yeah, perfect. Excellent. Uh, yeah, and the, the casting was brilliant. The fact that it's the first series is a slow burn, the fact that it takes its time. The last series, you've got one character, basically the entire series, she's trying to solve the problem of avoiding her own death in a spaceship where she's mm-hmm. trapped. It's absolutely fabulous. It's brilliant yeah. television. It, um, is. it is. I think it's, yeah. it's the best thing on 100%. TV. Yeah. Especially since Game of Thrones nosedived after the fifth season. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I was never, never, I don't like books. Uh, I couldn't, yeah. I tried to watch the, I think I watched the first season and I was like, yeah, it sucks. I don't know. Yeah. I just didn't, didn't do it for me. Yeah. I, th- I think possibly one of the reasons I enjoyed it was because it was big budget and you had people with Northern accents, <laughs> i.e. British Northern yeah. accents. Yeah, yeah. It was like, it was like, oh, Northern accents on That's telly. Me, yeah. You know, apart from the fact that, you know, most of them were actually Northern actors. <laughs> <laughs> they were just putting on northern accents. Most of them did it quite well, to be fair. Anyway, I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole. <laughs> I don't um, have to get yeah, I so, always, yeah, it's one of those things when, when I guess in the normal world, when people find out that you like read fantasy, everyone just assumes, oh, you love Game of Thrones. I'm like, oh. yeah. It's <laughs> so, like when people find out I like metal, they're like, oh, you like Slayer and Metallica. And I'm like, oh, yeah. fuck, it sucks. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's just, that's that's something I often say actually, um, you know, and, it, and it's true of fantasy as well. I love heavy metal, but I hate seventy percent of the heavy metal. Yeah, me too. Just... And it's it's, I mean, it's the same with whiskey. I love whiskey, but I don't yeah. like seventy percent of whiskey. You know, yeah. it's it's just one of those things, isn't it? Yeah. And I'm I'm the same with fantasy, and I'm the same with science fiction. I, I'll I'll probably never forgive myself for reading the Game of Thrones books because they ate up so much time. I once lost pretty much an entire week's holiday in France to Dance of Dragons and mm-hmm. got to the end and was like, what the fuck did I even read that for? I knew it wasn't going to conclude. I knew there wasn't going to be any kind of major payoff, but I've just, I've just wasted a holiday reading 800 pages of this. And it's, but it's, it's great, isn't it? The, the great thing about all this stuff is no matter how much you are a fan of something, there's always something that you've never come across. Of course, yeah. Just like I've never read Brandon Sanderson, for example, mm-hmm. as I mentioned previously. I've not got round to reading Alistair Reynolds, but I'm a big sci-fi and fantasy fan. But I yeah. always, I know it's all there for when I get a moment. <laughs> it's all there for me to for yeah. me to dig into. And I, th- I think that's one of the really fun things about being a fan of genre fiction as well is that it's 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 just such a massive, deep ocean of stuff. Yeah, that there's true. always going to be something else out there that you that you really dig. And if you don't find it, and you're reading something else at the time, well, it doesn't really matter. That's why I like, you know, that's why I like talking to like-minded people about it all and getting some suggestions. Yeah. So, I mean, you've already made a, a recommendation regarding Brandon Sanderson, but in terms of, you know, for stuff like um, music, what what are you listening to at the moment? What's inspiring you in the music scene? The straight answer. There's this this great band. I've, I just got their album uh, last week. They're called The Sun in the Mirror. Man, just go check it out, kind of thing. It's it's sort of journey doom. I should probably look it up. I think it's a cellist, right? A drummer, maybe. Actually, I'm not even sure how they make the music that they do. Yeah. Um, it's just fantastic. It's I like I like music that that um, you can put on incredibly loud. And my favorite way to consume music is literally just like you lay on the floor and stare at the ceiling, or close your eyes, and it's just there's something about the it's the atmosphere and you're like you get swallowed i like like in my head i think of it as being swallowed by the sound waves and like yeah. it just you can just disappear into it yeah. uh that's when i get taken away like that and this that band just is, has nailed it on this album that they put out the, the sun in the mirror check it out if, i will i'll uh, i'll actually i'll pop it in the show notes you want to take well, that so people want I like to, to call it music that, that just takes you on a mind journey kind of thing yeah <laughs> yeah i'll give that a look and um yeah. what what are you reading at the moment uh, I just finished um, Bone Silence by Alice Reynolds, which is wrapping up a, a trilogy um, of like a sort of space pirate trilogy that he was doing. Yeah. 
Um, that was fun. And I am incredibly excited. Are you familiar with the Lunar Trilogy? No. It hadn't been available in English. It was written in, in I guess, an older form of Polish. It's a, right, okay. uh, It's by uh, Jerry Zalaski. Um, it's a Polish author. It hadn't been available in English. Uh, I've been wanting to read it for years and years. Uh, I think it was written in 1908 or something. I've, I've only heard of the story. It was, it was, um, there's an unfinished film called uh, On the Silver Globe by uh, Andrzej Tarkovsky. Right. Who, are you familiar with? Yeah, Stalker yeah, yeah. And, yeah. Yep. Uh, I, I, got, I made Phil watch Solaris a few yeah, weeks yeah. ago. I, I got uh, the Criterion collection so, edition of Solaris the, on Blu-ray, and she said she, she'll never forgive me. <laughs> it, wasn't, so, it wasn't a cup of tea at all. As a fan of, of, of his work, and I have seen that movie interpreted, it's missing scenes. It, w- it wasn't allowed to be finished because it was right. considered subversive at the time. So if you can find a copy of the, the, the DVD, it has like still inserts of like right, the okay. scene was supposed to go here, here, and there. And yeah. stuff. But it's based on the first book from this Luna trilogy story. And it uh, only knowing the synopsis, it is the most, one of the most creative sci-fi um sort of synopsis as I've read. So to, I can't wait to experience the story right. and, and even how old it is. Well. It it's just it's like like the prime sci-fi, you know, like it's like story yeah. number one, 1908 or when it was written. I, I should look it up, but I'm so excited to read it. So. Yeah, I'm definitely gonna look that up. <laughs> definitely gonna look that up. There's there's some really great stuff come out of uh come out of Russia in terms of uh, books and films. Have you seen Hard to Be a God? Uh, I just bought it. I haven't watched it. I just bought it. That's another one. It came in the mail the other day. Yeah, that's another one. Phil said, uh, I'll never forgive you for making me watch this. (laughs) I bought that, you know, I bought that blind that just someone posted like stills from it. Yeah, it's absolutely superb. Every single frame of that film. I saw they posted like four images and I was like, I don't know what that is. I'll buy it. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. I, I have never seen a film that is so textured every single frame you could just study like an album cover for detail yeah. and and the people he's got in it even the extras are so committed to everything they do into making that world come alive on screen i've never seen anything quite like it it's absolutely Same. phenomenal yeah it's phenomenal it's been really really great to have you on and I really look forward to, to what you're going to come up with next. But <laughs> is there anything you'd like to say to, to our listeners just to encourage them to check your gear out? Uh, you know, I think uh, if you're into reading, I try to make my music as a passive journey for your brain while you read. So yeah. it's it's a good throw it on, pick up a good book and just yeah. melt away. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. cool. Yeah. Now, of course, just one, one other quick question. You've... Um, You've done Elric-inspired albums, and of course you did the Dreaming City, and then you did the Dreaming City Revise a little yeah. bit later. You revisited that. Why was that? Is it because you just had additional ideas that you wanted to, to add? Because there are new tracks on there, but there's also some which are kind of expanded from the original release. Yeah, I wanted to, in, in Mordecai fashion, I wanted to reapproach some of those Re-invent. some of those ideas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I, I had just... I really wanted a song to be called Yakun the Usurper on the mm. first album. And it just never worked out. So that yeah. was really the <laughs> impetus. I just love that. That would be a great band name as well. Actually, yeah. It? So, 
Yeah. <laughs> that's a shallow reason, but that's why. Yeah, absolutely. So. Yeah. Are, are there any other uh, Mocock characters you think, or, or Mocock books that you think you might um, adapt at some point in the future? Um, there probably are, but like, I like to to intentionally get myself stuck in dumb ideas, and I think I just might do the dreams sitting another time, and and I want to like change the genre every time completely. Yeah. So yeah. I'd really like to to take some like do the same thing, take three of the songs, redo them. Um, and then add three more songs, but then I want the whole the whole like taint of that one to be seventies prog. Mm. And so then we'll have a, a you know I have the electronic a dreaming city, the more metal dreaming city, yep. then a prog dreaming city, and then ultimately a, a doom a f- like full doom metal dreaming city, and then yeah. that's, just keep pounding out that one idea. So. Uh, well, you know that's the most Malkakian thing of yeah, all. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And actually, you know, if, if you if you follow the true Mokokian path, you'll still be doing this in 40, 50 years. And you'll <laughs> yeah. still be rewriting the Dreaming City. Yeah. <laughs> to apply different ideas. Yeah. Well, you know what? It's, it's been great having you on. And um, everybody, you can find Derek's stuff on Bandcamp under the name Imria. Imria. Get my words together. <laughs> I am, I'm only halfway down my first beer. I haven't lost the power of speech yet. Um, but it's it's absolutely fantastic. Is, is any of your previous um, musical? Yeah, I mean, I've I've been in I've been in some bands. I don't I don't need to plug in. It doesn't matter. Yeah, but is, is is any of it out there? On yeah, it's out there. Places like that. Well, yeah, I think okay. so. If 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 you don't want to plug it on here, just just drop you, me a line you, afterwards you like... and, and let me know, yeah. and I'll, I'm going to check it out. All right. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks ever so much for coming on. It's been great to have you on. And uh, don't forget, everybody, you can also catch some of the Maria track. God, I can't say it. The Maria tracks. That's actually that's more cocking as well. <laughs> Come up with names that you can't actually say four yeah, times no. out of five. Um, some of that stuff's on uh, Breakfast in the Rooms radio as well. But f- for the close of this show, it'd be really, really lovely to play it out with uh, with one of your tunes off the Dreaming City or the Dreaming City Revised. Is yeah, there sure. any, anyone in particular that you'd you'd like us to play? Um, uh, the Moonglum second version. I love that. Cool. <laughs> Moonglum second version will be coming up at the close of the show. Right, okay. Cool. Well, it's been brilliant, Derek. Thanks for coming on. It was a pleasure. Massive thanks to Dave and Derek for popping into Derry and Tom's to talk music and all sorts of other stuff along the way. You can find Sonus and Imria at their Bandcamp pages, and I'll link them in the show notes. Up next on our itinerary, we'll be getting back to the Mocock reread for a while, and we'll be looking at City of the Beast, aka Warriors of Mars with Phil, Phase 3 of the final programme, finally, with Hussein, a couple of randomly rolled short stories in the actual physical company of Laws for the first time since last summer, and wizardry and wild romance with an all-new guest who's been a great encouragement and friend of the show since we first kicked off 28 episodes or so ago. Right, it's now time to thank our marvellous patrons, and we have a couple of new ones too. So, salutations to the Chaos Engineers, hard at work below decks, suffering through Brute of Lashmar's relentless jamming, God help us if he ever gets on Bandcamp. Andrew Cicluna, Andrew Van Ness, Ben Fletcher, Dave Washman, of course, Fred Keish, Jim Kirkland, 
John Lays, John Timothy Watt, Malpertwee, Nelbert, Simon Perrins, Robbo, and Tony Malazzo, and to our Jugaderos, still arguing about who won the five-volume set of Danis books and desperately trying to learn the rules of Favor in order to settle the issue. Alexander Harris, Clarkey, Craig Ledley, Ian Stead, Loz, Taylor, Matthew Broom, Miles Reed Lobato, much love to you and the Mrs. Miles, Randall Gatlin, Stephen Round, and Tom Murphy. And thanks too to the occupants of the spaces between the tiers, Tim Cardos, and, brand new, Sebastian Weetabix. And finally, of course, to our patron demons, ever patient, awaiting their time in the ascendancy as the cosmic balance swings back and forth. Anthony Piconti, Ed Scott, forger of the Blade of Arizona, Graham Holden, a.k.a. the Duck Pond Sailor, and Apkalu of Enmakar, both on Bandcamp, by the way. Paul Hillary, a.k.a. Coinbiter, ever looking to trim your spending, with a Lormirian sea axe. Gemma, a.k.a. Mortmain. Nathan, a.k.a. Core and Metal, on Bandcamp. Neil Burton, the Stickmaster. Joe Monty, and once again, a reminder that the marvellous-looking Saga Press editions of the Elric Saga, Care of Joe, are available for pre-order now and releasing from September. Bob McMillan. Bob, we need to think of a way to tie Bob Dylan into Mocock, no matter how tenuous, so we can talk about Haiku 61 Revisited in Derry and Toms. Norman Beresford, the Baker on the Rocks, and, of course, the OG patron. Gareth Wilson, the Cursed Monkey Hand, an upper of pledges joining us in the patron demon tier. And finally, joining the exalted, a new patron demon, Will Jameson. Will dropped me a line to tell me about his history with Mocock. Will said, My first exposure to Mocock was through D&D. A box of old books found in the back of the closet after my older brother went to college included a copy of Deities and Demigods. The older version, with the Lovecraft, Lieber and Mocock bits. I'd never heard of any of them, but the illustrations were captivating. Sometime later, a used bookstore opened in town, a little concrete bunker of a building run by a pipe-smoking, overalls-wearing old man in the Gary Gygax Ed Greenwood mould. It was the first one I'd seen that had a fantasy section on purpose, obviously curated instead of shelved with distaste behind racks and racks of romance novels. I knew the guy was legit, because he also had a wire rack of new TSR books on the wall by the register. Anyway... I found a copy of Elric of Malnibane, the Silver Race edition with Robert Gould art. I was hooked, and the timing was perfect. The first six Ace Elrics were still on the shelves, so I burned through those to the traumatic conclusion, and, soon after, the White Wolf Eternal Champion Omnibus editions started coming out. It felt like a golden age for getting into Morcock, and the treasure hunt for the ones I don't have continues to this day. I can honestly say, Will, that the hunt never ends and my own shelf continues to expand and grown as I find new additions and covers that I have to possess. And on the subject of Robert Gould, Phil and I were in Markham a few weekends ago, and there's a terrific bookshop in Markham called The Old Pier Bookshop, and I picked up one of those marvellous Millennium editions in hardcover with a beautiful Robert Gould cover. And that reminds me, Simon Perrins and I have been having a discussion about covering the subject of Mocock and art in an upcoming episode. More on that later. Will's dungeon synth work as Puddleglum is on Bandcamp. Check it out, it's another brilliant example of how essential dungeon synth has become to the world of electronica. Okay, enough of my yakking for now. We'll be playing out this show with Moonglum from the Dreaming City Revised by Imria, 
so stay tuned. Until next time, you can gab with and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at the handle at Breakfast Ruins. You can email the show at breakfastruins at outlook.com. The blog is breakfastintheruins.com, and we have our Patreon page too, and that has a few Patreon exclusives. Take care, stay safe, and I'll see you again soon on the Moonbeam Roads. Thank you.